let me be clear. <clears throat> I do not recommend that you Google the phrase total ass fucker. But if you were to Google that phrase, my next guest would uh, pop up at the very top of your search results. I'm looking at it now. It's an article called The Man in the Shadows from uh, the Portland Mercury. And it's a story about Mark Wiener, who um, is a political consultant here in Portland. He uh, worked in New York for years. He's worked on the national level. And um, now he's uh, a major player here in the Portland political scene. Um, And uh, in this profile that was written about him in 2010, uh, an anonymous political insider described him as a total (laughs) ass fucker. And the journalist sort of went with that as his lead, which is why he pops up there uh, under that. Uh, I've had a couple other guests on here who I would I would have thought would be much more likely to uh, pop up on the Google search. Maybe Connor Habib, for example, a gay porn star, intellectual uh, repeat guest on this podcast. But no, it's Mark Wiener who isn't even gay uh, and isn't a porn star. But anyway, he's a very interesting guy. He's uh, much to my surprise, actually. He's very willing to talk. Openly, honestly, un- without seemingly without uh, worrying about protecting his reputation, which may be one of the great things about being known as a total ass fucker. You don't really have to protect your reputation. I mean, uh, although political consultant is one of these areas where where being known as a total ass fucker, um, you know, it's probably a good thing. Yeah, right? you don't want to get on the wrong side of a guy like that. Is it? Am I being homophobic by by laughing about ass fucking? I mean, not only gay people ass fuck, right? So I guess that's not homophobic. I never know when I'm being offensive. That's that's you know a problem I have. Um, it's a mystery to me. I I offend people all the time and can't even figure out why. Uh, anyway, Mark Wiener, fascinating guy. As you'll hear, he, uh, he worked on Charles Schumer's, um, campaigns early in his career. I guess that's how he got into politics way back in the day. Charles Schumer, who is still a sitting senator, the senior senator from New York. Um, interesting, uh, you know, big time, big time player in the American political scene. Anyway, Mark and I talk about, you know, what kind of people get into politics, uh, a lot of behind the scenes stuff, uh, you know, conspiracies, and and uh, he's sort of not a true believer. I am a little more um, than he is, I think. I watched a fascinating documentary last night, by the way. Uh, definitely recommend uh, Frontline. I, I love Frontline. It's one of my favorite uh, documentary series on TV. Uh, it's a PBS creation. Uh, it's what news used to be. All news used to be like this. I mean, even network news used to be like this. 60 Minutes used to be like this. It's no bullshit. It's it's asking serious questions, digging into stuff, not uh, accepting the the sort of prepackaged news in in air quotes that we get now that's produced by the people who were supposed to be investigating. That's not news. That's a 
you know, public service announcement. That's a, an advertisement. That's propaganda. And news isn't supposed to be reporting the propaganda. It's supposed to be investigating and questioning the propaganda. But that's not really happening very much in the United States anymore, um, which is bad because the United States is one of the only places where it ever happened in a serious way. Anyhow, Frontline, uh, the the episode I'm thinking of is called Putin's Way, and it's about the rise to power of Vladimir Putin. And um, I'm no expert on Russian history. I've got a sort of a personal connection uh, at this point because a very close friend of mine works with um, – uh, what's his name, Kurokovsky, who was the richest man in Russia, one of the oligarchs, sort of number one oligarch before he got too big for his britches and Putin threw him in prison for 10 years. Um, obviously, my friend speaks Russian very well and has spent a lot of time in Russia. And, and so through this friendship, I have uh, some knowledge of Russia and I've read a lot of Russian literature and I've sort of been connected to, uh, or at least intellectually curious about that part of the world for most of my life. Um, but this uh, documentary about Putin was fascinating because, you know, you probably know Putin was in the KGB. He's a um, true believer in the power of the state over everything else. And he's sort of backed himself into an interesting corner now where he's stolen so much money and committed so many crimes that he really doesn't feel that he would be safe if anyone else were in power. So the only way he can keep himself alive and out of prison is to keep riding that bull. Uh, you know, he's got the only, it's like you're you're in a rodeo and the safest place to be is on the back of that bucking bull, right? So that's where he is and, and that may be why he's so unwilling to uh, to give up power. But there he is. And, and the thing that was so fascinating in this documentary was that they demonstrated and, and showed quite clearly that the state, the intelligence service, had staged false flag operations against the Russian people, blowing up apartment buildings, killing hundreds of people, and they blamed it on the Chechens, and then they launched a war in Chechnya against the uh, Islamic separatists in, in Chechnya, which is a region of the old Soviet Union that wanted to be independent because they're culturally completely different from Russians. Anyway, Putin and his boys clearly blew up these buildings, killing hundreds of their own people in order to then justify the invasion of Chechnya, which then united the country behind the strong leadership of Vladimir Putin. Uh, how do we know that this was a staged operation? Well, one of the bombs didn't go off, and residents in the apartment building found the bombs in the basement and found and caught the guys planting the bomb. The guys they caught turned out to be intelligent agents, intelligence agents, and the, the bombs were constructed of material that was only available to the military. The detonators were military issue, military, military, all the way. 
Uh, so there you go. Now, I'm not saying that proves anything about 9-11. I'm not saying it proves anything about any particular case. But what I am saying is that it definitely proves that, uh, as if anyone needs proof, that people in power are willing to do incredible things, things that normal people like you and I have trouble even imagining in order to consolidate and um, preserve their power. All right. Well, I'm not going to do any um, mashups this week, um, but I thought I would play a song called Simple Man, which I played once before, four or five episodes back. Uh, it was sent in by a guy named Colin, who's the lead singer for a band called Man Made Lake up in uh, BC near uh, Victoria, I believe. Uh, anyway, you can find out more about them at manmadelake.bandcamp.com uh, or uh, you can, I guess, get the solo. If you want uh, a copy of this song, you can find it at Sale Cassidy, S-A-I-L, Cassidy, C-A-S-S-A-D-Y dot bandcamp dot com. And the song is called Simple Man, as I said. I really like it. I like the way he plays it, like the way he sings it. Uh, it's it's one of these songs that will stick in your head for a long time and uh, deserves a place there in your head, I would say. Um, you know, it's a song worth pondering. And uh, I'm pondering why this interview with Mark Wiener reminded me of the song Mark is anything but a simple man, certainly in the simple-minded sense of the word simple. Um, He's uh, vastly intelligent. Uh, But there is something that I found um, unguarded about him, as I said earlier, that was very refreshing, especially for someone who's uh, so tuned into public perception, image control, and all those sorts of things. I know he's generally doing it for other people. Um, but uh, in any case, I really enjoy talking with him, and uh, I think you can hear we had a good time. The conversation uh, ended really quickly, the first part of it, because he had to run off and pick up his daughter and we sort of lost track of time. We were having so much fun. And then he came back a couple days later and we picked it up from there. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hope you're having a great time. Uh, thanks for everything. Um, if you're buying stuff through Amazon, please use the portal. If you think of it on my uh, homepage, chrisryanphd.com. There's a conversation going on at the Reddit uh, or the subreddit is tangentially speaking one word. You can find people there talking about episodes. I go in there and answer questions and, uh, you know, sort of uh, say hello when I can. Thanks to Danny Osment at emeraldcitypro.com for mastering these files. And Shore Design t-shirts for uh, just resupplying these sold-out Civilized to Death shirts. We've got them back in stock. So if you wanted to buy Civilized to Death Men's Large, we've got them back in stock. And we're all set. If you use uh, the discount code sex at dawn, one word, you get 10% off your order at Shore Design T-shirts. And what else? Carsey Blanton. Thanks again, Carsey. I think she's on tour right now. Check out her homepage, carseyblanton.com. If she's coming to a town near you, 
trust me, see her now. See her now while she's playing small venues, small funky bars and cafes and church back rooms because it's an amazing experience to hear her sing. She's lovely. All right. Thanks. And I'll catch you next week. With gentle hands, a piece of thread, a hard cold glass. Cause I know I'm not a simp, man. I take the blows the best I can. I try, I need your smile. Yes, and I, I need your smile. Let's sever all our vicious thoughts. Let's try to laugh, steer our hearts. Cause you know I'm not a simple man You say the words the best you can I need, I need to be kind Oh and I, I need to be kind Little diamond fingers Resting on the boat Running with your pleasure I'm hanging on the hooves Yes, cause I am a difficult man There's anything I've learned It's how to love As if you'll die Paint the canvas of your life Cause I know I'm just a wild man You say the words the best you can You try and I need to be kinder And I know I need to be kind Yes and I, I need to be kinder Yes and I, I need Little diamond fingers Resting on the books Running through with pleasure I'm hanging on the hooks Yes, cause I am a difficult man If there's anything there's anything I've learned 
as anything I've learned It's how to love All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're here in the uh, plush studios of KCPR. I'm nervous. That's K- I'm CPR. I Christopher Patrick Ryan. We were talking about Ireland earlier. That's about as Irish as you get right there. Um, I'm here with, uh, with Mark Wiener, political consultant. Is that what you call yourself? For lack of a better term, yeah. Yeah? Okay. Man about town. So um, now this is going to be a contentious conversation, all right, because I, I'm so fucking fed up with American politics. And I'm going to hold you responsible for it. So you can hold me responsible, but don't <laughs> expect much of an argument. <laughs> well, well, what's it like? I mean, have you ever heard of Robert Sapolsky? Uh, the name? Yeah, he's uh, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant a few years ago. He's he's the scientist teaches neuroscientist teaches at Stanford has dreadlocks. I mean, he looks like a homeless guy, and he's a you know super genius, uh, world famous primatologist neuroscientist. And he's been studying this troop of baboons in Kenya for 20-some years now. Every summer he goes there and studies the same troop. So he's seen generations come and go, right? And uh, baboons are pretty nasty. They're very hierarchical, male-dominated, a lot of fighting and you know, power plays and all that. Uh, coalitional. It's not like gorillas where there's one alpha male who takes over. It's like coalitions and they shift alliances. So it's very, very much like human politics. And uh, so he talks about this. Uh, one summer he went and they had um, uh, there'd been a hotel built nearby for tourists. And so this troop had started going to the dump of this hotel. And of course, the best food goes to the uh, the alpha group of males, right? The most dominant males. And the best food is the meat scraps. So one year there was tuberculosis in some of the meat scraps. And the top coalition of ruling males were suddenly all dead. So he thought, oh my, this is going to be a disaster. Because when males reach sexual maturity, they shift out of their natal group and join, you know, go out and join other groups. So these, you know, Vikings, essentially, these young, crazed males are going to come into this defenseless group with no dominant males to keep them in check. They're going to go nuts, right? So he came back the next summer expecting to see havoc. And what he found was that there were, in fact, new males in the group, but they were chilled out. The, the group had developed a culture of peace and cooperation in the absence of those dominant males that was stronger than the aggressive impulses of the new males who came in. So the new males came in, learned this chilled out way to be a baboon that no other baboons had ever tried before. And, he's, and it's like seven or eight years later, it's still like that. So this is the only thing that gives me hope. I'm generally pessimistic, but this story gives me hope. If we blow up Wall Street and D.C., we can figure a way out of this mess. And I mean that not literally to the, uh, the NSA. <laughs> Speak into the microphone, please. Exactly. I mean that vote them out is what I really mean. So, so, anyway. so I've got to say, this is the <laughs> first time I've heard an interesting argument that, that would argue for term limits, yeah. which, I think, which I think is uh, a, a stupid, self-inflicted wound by the body politic. Because you think that politics is something you need to learn to be good at and your value increases or what? 
No, because it infantilizes, infantilizes, mm -hmm. whichever, uh, the electorate. You can't be counted on to make a good decision, so we're just going to, you know, restrict your decisions. You okay. know, there are term limits, but they are uh, called elections. Now, we can have an argument that the system of uh, elections has major problems and needs reform. Yeah. But, you know, lopping off a limb is not the answer to, uh, you know, a hangnail or, uh, or a, uh, an infection. Um, but I do, I, I, do, I do kind of like the idea because the idea of getting rid of the whole ruling class you know, <laughs> in, in one fell swoop is uh, sort of attractive. Just, it's an old fantasy. It is. It, it is. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, OK, so let's let's work from your pivot from your your premise there. Right. Which is that the electorate is not already infantilized. I mean, isn't the American political system seems to me to be based upon misinformation and restricted access to voting. And between the two of those and gerrymandering districts. So between those three ways of, of rigging, sort of rigging, rigging the system, <laughs> exactly, you get what a certain class of people want, which is, you know, what was the, I just saw the other day, this, this new Congress that's just been elected is like 95% white men over 60 and 80% Christian or something. How is that reflective of the body politic? Uh, well, it isn't, but you know it's it's hard because you got to parse the different elements of it, all of which are are, are relevant. I think so. Uh, first of all, um, a basic premise I have is one of the great problems with representative democracy is it works pretty much as advertised. You know, you get you get the same proportion of idiots and the corrupt and uh, the altruistic and the super smart as uh, you tend to see in in the electorate. But not the, the same proportion of women or of people of color no. or of economic class or no, educational that's, that's, or of non-lawyers. Uh, so it's not really working as advertised. Well, uh, it, it is in one sense in that people think, you know, to the extent that people think that there's uh, sort of a... Um, you know, a great sorting out and the people who rise to levels of power or Congress or Senate or something like that are somehow in the Edmund Burke sense, you know, a superior group of people that the system itself weeds out the, the hoi polloi. Right. And, and really, I mean, you have you have people in Congress who, you know, are just not down with evolution. You know, the head of the science committee. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, you, you have to, you know, and it's not pleasant. No, no, no one ever, no one ever did really well in politics by attacking the customer, which is the voter. But, um, you know, there's a chunk of the country who I lovingly call, and I, and I tried to get this phrase used, uh, and I've never had any success, the trailer park Taliban. Oh, that's a good phrase. I, I think so, and I've never got any traction with it. Yeah. Maybe this podcast will be the moment. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, you do a poll and you ask people, you know, who believes in uh, evolution, full stop. Like, no, that's the story. And, you know, it's in the 20s. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so first of all, you have to understand that there are a lot of people who live in the country uh, when we look at Congress and say, how can you have these unbelievable poltroons actually in charge of, say, the science committee? They come from places where they're pretty representative of the general view. Now, yeah. you layer on top of that other problems, 
like the campaign finance system uh, or, um, you know, the um, hegemony of the uh, of, of the media. You know, I mean, Fox News is number one. Right. Um, so people are getting bad information. But there are also active consumers of bad information. You know, it's the most popular news channel there is. I mean, everybody could go read the New York Times or, mm-hmm. you know, listen to NPR. They don't. Yeah. Those choices are available to them. And so to me, the bigger problem what we have is what some people have called the great sorting, that technology and media and information sources and the sort of support structure of people's day-to-day lives Mm -hmm. are making them increasingly able to just hang out with their own kind. Yeah. And so there is much less interaction. And the more that you're around people that just reinforce your natural prejudices or predilections or belief system, the less likely you're going to be tolerant of other views, and therefore the less you're going to engage in the practice of politics as it was intended to be, which yeah. is you get a bunch of people in the room and they talk with each other and they, they, they work it out. Uh, you know, the, the, the Senate president of, uh, of Oregon, this guy named Peter Courtney, he's been doing it forever. Uh, I love Peter. He's an old client of mine. I've worked with him for years and years and years. And he is fond of saying, you know, if you can find a bill, if, if a bill is 60 to 70 percent right, you should find a way to vote for it. Uh, and that's, you know, his respect for the system of, 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 of compromise. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just much more difficult for people to do that. You know, there's a great sort of politically incorrect, I assume, analysis of the deterioration of the inner city, especially the African-American community in the, you know, when, um, you know, the inner city just became a hellhole. You know, I lived in New York. I'm from New York originally. Mm-hmm. And I grew up there and then um, uh, came out here to go to college, but went back to New York in 1979 and was there from 79 to 76. So that was, you know, the bad old days. 79 to 76. Yeah, so yeah I, that was rough. That yeah, was I missed, a taxi driver. I, I, I was a taxi driver. Oh, yeah. I actually worked as when a cab driver. Out, right? yeah. Ta- uh, yeah. yeah, and, you know, I mean, uh, I yeah. missed the summer of Sam. Yeah. But uh, it was still pretty bad. So, you know, that was when the, you know, the inner city was just, oh, my God. It was yeah. just like a smoking ruin. So there is one line of thought um, which I, I won't particularly associate myself with, but it seems interesting to me and has sort of the, 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 the smell of potential truth, that one of the causes of the rapid collapse of the inner city was the Fair Housing Act. Now, what the Fair Housing Act said is uh, you can't not sell a house or rent to black people wherever it is they want to live. Uh, and then all of a sudden... Um, you know, African-Americans had, you know, more options of where to live. Well, it used to be these inner cities, these, these cohesive African-American communities had everything. It had poor people. It had a professional class. It had storekeepers. Uh-huh, it, had, it had the full range of what we would um, lovingly call a society. Right. And then, all of a sudden, everyone who could afford to move moved. Right. And you were left with people who couldn't afford to move, which had according to this line of thinking, um, a uh, disfiguring 
impact on kids and the perception of opportunity and role models. And, and the what, reality of opportunity. Because there are no local businesses anymore. Absolutely. And yeah. the food supply, you know, the yeah, recent yeah, stores the are all leaving. Are, yeah, yeah. Crop up. Well, this is what's just happened in Detroit, right? And the same basic thing. Like, the only people still live in Detroit are people who can't get out. Yeah. Right? And, and it turns out pretty much everyone could get out at that point, which is why it's I mean, Detroit is going to be the most fascinating urban experiment of our time. Yeah. I've got a couple friends who are now going back, you know, that sort of first, you know, the pioneers going back and buying a house for five grand and betting their future that it's going to improve. Well, improve, but also transform. I mean, when you, when you have this vast tracts of abandoned housing that all you can do is plow under, the possibility for what we call urban green spaces here, which means, you know, a park or a big park. Yeah. I mean, these are substantial tracts of land that all of a sudden you could do anything with. If you have the money for it. So the it's question is, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you know, uh, Quicken only has so much money, although the owner of Quicken has invested a lot in, yeah. in the downtown area. You know, do people look at this as a canvas that for a pretty modest investment you can do some crazy shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely experiments. And, and, and if people take the city up, not the city government, but the, the, the actual city up on the expanded, you know, range of possibilities, it could be one of the most fascinating urban experiments yeah. ever. Yeah. But who knows? I, I, I pulled you off the track, though. You were talking about New York in the 70s and the Fair Housing Act. So what, what, uh, there was a point you were getting. Well, I to. mean, this is it, it's it that's sort of a, that's sort of related to the idea of people sorting themselves out, right? So, oh, so I see. it's okay. a segregation, right. but it's not just a racial segregation. It's a segregation right. of worldview, right. of economic opportunity, right. intellectual uh, ghettos. In, 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 yes, intellectual yeah. ghettos, social ghettos, yeah. economic ghettos. I mean, there's a whole set of them, and so I think that is a substantial cause of some of the some some of the problems we're seeing in democracy so so it's it's easy to you know if if you if you sort of squint your eyes a little and you fuzz things out a little it's quite easy to say politics well that's a big fucking mess yeah um but when you try to tease apart the 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 elements of that it's uh it's it's there's a lot of shit going on and it's very complicated. And the idea that, you know what we really need? We need campaign finance reform. If we have campaign finance reform, well, then big money won't be able to control our, our Congress and, and unicorns will jump out of my ass and over rainbows. And, you know, it, it actually doesn't work because you're just squeezing the balloon on one end. And that's why it's, you know, it, it's hard to pinpoint what, what's the solution. So, okay, then then let's follow that up. If if we removed uh, big money from the political process, let's say all all um, campaigns were publicly financed, like in several European countries, um, and it's illegal to give more than you know five thousand dollars or whatever to a candidate privately, then how's the big money gonna get in there? Well, they do say that, you know, money is like water. It finds a way. It finds its way. Right. But, but, I, I mean, but you I, can build dams, right? Well, I mean, you, that's you what can, anti-corruption but, but, laws are. Yes. Um, and the problem is people are too timid. 
What do you think I about mean, this guy, Bob, uh, what's his name in Virginia, who just went to jail for corruption? I, I don't see the difference between what he did and what everybody does. Yes, exactly. It's such shitty little corruption. Bob, what's his name? Bob McConnell. McConnell, right. Yeah, I mean. He took 200 grand. Yeah, fuck, and, is that what you're going to put people in jail for? Exactly. I mean, you've got people who are peanuts. starving. They are going to have generational poverty, that you're the the public assets are being sold off to the highest builder only to be resold to the people who used to own it. Exactly. You know, the idea that right. the, you know, you know, the public airwaves, the public airwaves. Right. Why should anyone have to pay money for a political head? Right. That's our shit. That's yeah. our public airways. Well, and it's also written into the, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, into the original legislation establishing those airways that a certain percentage of their time is going to be used for the public good and Absolutely. blah, 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 right? And you know, which is now cartoons that, that, you know, sell Jello or something. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, uh, so you know, I have, so I think, let me put it out there, the only possible campaign finance reform that would work is a robust uh, system of public financing where you get what you get, and nobody can do, you know, you can't be bought. Like if you want to pick up, you know, uh, I would say small donations to establish that there are enough people that you should be eligible for public financing. Sure. That's fine. Right. But I think that's the only thing that works. You've got to actually say, no, you get to state your case on an even playing field. Which, you know, let's face it, the NFL is a great example of that. Revenue sharing. The only reason Green Bay is ever in the playoffs is because they get the same amount of money that Dallas and New York and the other major markets get. And, so why can't we do that with politics? Well, and in some places you can. So the um, uh, New York City public finance system is actually pretty good. I um, ran a campaign for somebody who was uh, running for city council. They had a, a new uh, charter reform, so there were a bunch of new seats. They went up to like 50-odd seats in the city council, and there mm. were only 30. Mm. So this guy ran for one of the open seats. There were six candidates. He was sort of barely snuck into the top tier of three. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's a you know too long a story to get in here and the, tech, the technique of it, but um, there was public financing, and he got a double match because the favorite was self-financing, right? So even the playing field a little bit. And he won a um, he won a very tight race. Everyone was shocked that he won. And, hmm. You know, I actually moved back to Brooklyn for a summer because I had promised him that if he ran for office, I'd help him. Oh, really? Um, That's a good story. His name? Uh, city Council? The guy who just became mayor? No. no. Anthony Weiner. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. My brother from another mother, as I was he would put ask. it. That's great. Right. Uh, yeah, he went off the rails long after uh, I stopped working with him. Anthony Weiner. I don't know if you're at liberty to, to talk about him or not, but, you know, you're talking about Bob McDonald being a sacrificial lamb. Uh, well, and it's not a sacrificial lamb. I want to continue on that, yeah. on that idea of what, what is corruption. Right. Um, the um, uh, he got caught being a small time grifter, you know. He's McDonald. Seen, yeah, yeah. He, you know he, you know I, I can't even remember what it was. A contractor gave him a pool. Well, or some guy was selling dietary supplements, supplements, and, and he was his wife. his wife was doing yeah, yeah. sort of similar to the Oregon situation in some uh, ways. Uh, but so, but but so yeah. 
So sure, that's it's like bread. And, it's 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 like bread and circuses. You know, you distract people with that, and then you miss the point that the entire system is rigged exactly against yeah. against normal working people, and it's getting worse and worse every year. Right. What so, he should have done, which is what everyone else does, is wait till you're out of office, and then you get the you know the seat on the board of directors, and that's when you get your forty million dollars. Why do it while you're in office? Just hold on. Yeah, especially for Revolving such small, door. Yeah. Know, small change. Yeah, like the guy paid for his daughter's prom uh, party or some bullshit like that. That's yeah. the kind of stuff he got yeah. in trouble and, for. And, yeah, and, it's, and it was wrong, and he's being punished, and it's probably appropriate. And I didn't follow the case closely enough, but it may be that he made the same mistake that everybody does just by virtue of human nature, when you get caught in something like that is... Cover it up. You cover it up or deny, deny, <laughs> the old vaudeville, yeah. deny, deny, deny. The yeah. first thing you should do is, oh, man, I really didn't mean to do something wrong. But I might have. Yeah. I'm going so to rehab. Let me... No, I said, you know what? Let me... I throw myself on the mercy of the court. Right. If you tell me I did something wrong, I'll accept whatever punishment you give me. I'll pay. I'll give the money back. But you know, and and maybe you still get in trouble. But at least you don't look like a weasel, and you're trying to avoid the inevitable here, and it gets worse and worse. Yeah. It's you know, it's the old saying. It's always never the crime. It's always the cover up. So, yeah. well, sometimes it's the crime. No, sometimes it's like the crime. you know, dick pics. <laughs> <laughs> the Wieners thing. I, that's, I, not I, even, I, that's not even a crime. That's the thing. I mean, really? Yeah, yeah. You sent your picture of a dick out to people? This is what's going to crumble? Because let me tell you something. He was going to be mayor. Well, and that's the thing. Going, so how are people so fucking dumb? That's what I don't get. Anthony Weiner, he's not an idiot, right? I mean, he's. Oh, I, I, I've heard I him talk enough to know he's a brilliant man. He's a friend of John Stewart's. You can't be a friend of John Stewart's for long if you're not a smart guy. He's, he had balls, no pun intended. He, he I mean, he confronted. And we can prove it. <laughs> yeah. He confronted power. He, he'd been in power for quite a while. He knew how things worked. He knew he was on the upslope dramatically. He was going to be mayor, as you say. How does a guy like that, or John Edwards, how do they make themselves so vulnerable? Or uh, Spitzer, same case, brilliant. Like attacking very, very powerful institutions and you just leave your 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 cover down and stick your jaw out there to get punched in the face. What is wrong with these guys? So given that you're the author of a <laughs> book called Sex at Dawn, yeah, which yeah, tracks yeah. human behavior through yeah. through sex. I take it this is a rhetorical question. <laughs> but I will yeah, I'd like I to hear will, your answer. And I will treat it as I've I will treat it as the, you know, as the in, instructive uh, thing that a rhetorical answer is, as question is supposed to be. Yeah. I, I've always said there's nothing wrong with the world that getting rid of all the people wouldn't cure. Uh-huh. And that's the problem. Especially it's the men. Human nature. Oh, wow. Look, we have vote by mail here in Oregon. Uh-huh. I would gladly give up my franchise if it could just be vote by female. <laughs> I mean, I've sat through enough focus groups that are segregated. They're sex segregated for uh-huh. interesting reasons. But uh, and it's like, wow, if we could just have women vote and not have men vote, no fucking problem here. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's human nature. Now, Anthony in, in, in particular... You know, um, he's uh, he's very smart. He can be very obnoxious. He had a pretty good appreciation of his own intellect and abilities sure. and, and uh, yeah. place in the world. Right. 
Most people, when they're adolescents, once again, this is straying into your area of expertise, so you can tell me I'm wrong. But most people, most men in their adolescence at some point get caught. They are bashing the bishop and mom opens the door and they are humiliated. It is a scar they never forget. That welt stays on your ass for a lifetime. But they learn a lesson. Oh, shit. Maybe I should be a little more careful with this. I think Anthony just never got <laughs> caught whacking off by his mom. <laughs> that is the best theory I've heard. I, 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 I am a hundred, and I and I and I like Anthony, and he's a he's a um, you know he's he is a smart guy, and I think he would have been a terrific mayor. I mean, he has his flaws like everybody, but he is somebody who would stand up and you know he was the only person thing you know people criticize Obamacare. I don't like Obamacare. The reason I don't like Obamacare, while I'll admit it's better than the status quo ante, is we're not even going to talk about a single payer system. The system that is the only thing that makes sense, that is working all over the world, that delivers better health care, more equitably, at less cost than anywhere. We're not even going to talk about it. We're not even going to talk about a public option. There. You want corruption? There's corruption. Institutional. The the medical industrial complex and the insurance industry spends more on lobbyists than anywhere else. They call you a socialist if you want to give people health care and people melt away like a springtime snow. Yeah. That's corruption. Yeah, you're right. They're right. And yeah. it's so far beyond anything some second rate loser like Bob McDonald ever did or, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, Bob McDonald's going to prison, but Dick Cheney isn't. <laughs> right. Shit. You know, ordering torture. Yeah, you can get away with that. But uh, Petraeus telling his girlfriend a few secrets that she never told anyone and that didn't compromise American security. He apparently is now going to be tried. You hear about that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, he's actually going to be tried. Well, it's up to Eric Holder, but the the investigating committee from the FBI and the CIA and all that have directed that he should be tried, that he committed felony, you know, it's... offenses, which which maybe he did. But to me, the, the the difference is that there was sex involved in that. And that, as you say, it's a distraction well, you know, from the real thing. As a hammer, the world looks like a nail to you, I'm sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but, but it's true. And so the, so the real question is not whether there is that kind of systemic corruption in the system or, or whether average people get a, a rigorous screwing in their day-to-day life and it just gets worse. I don't even think that's up for question. Right. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the statistics on economic disparity or people's alienation, the only question is: is it a plan, or is it just happenstance? Is it sort of the once you get into this centrifugal force of people going to their own corners and the ability of the media or the medical industrial complex or anybody else to manipulate that? to their own ends by distracting people, like I say, bread and circuses. Is, is that just a happy coincidence from them by, by sociological um, trends? Or is it a plan? Is it derived from, you know, Richard Mellon Scaife and some other very, very rich right-wingers investing a huge amount of money into things like the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation and, and coming up with an infrastructure of how to arrange information in a way that would come to this end. I 
am unqualified to say whether this is the culmination of a great master plan, which will, you know. You're unqualified. Then who would be qualified? And you live your life in politics. You know this as well as anyone. Why? I mean, you just made an argument and then refused to follow it to its logical conclusion. Well, as far because as I, the, whole, the whole think tank system was set up in, what, the 70s and 80s absolutely. by these billionaires, right? Absolutely. One of whom you named, the Koch brothers yeah. and others. Uh, the whole idea was to plant these ideas in the media. This was all uh, articulated openly, right? Yeah. And to to shift the discussion further to the right by by shifting the sense of the center to the right, which they did perfectly, right? I mean, Ronald Reagan at this point would be in many ways considered a leftist. Oh well, I and mean, Richard Nixon Rich, don't even talk about Richard it. Nixon is the most. Pro- we have not had a president. Uh, as progressive as Richard Nixon since he left the scene. Right. I mean, think about what this guy did. He, the EPA, you know, the right? The EPA. Yeah. He, he, he proposed a negative income tax. He imposed wage and price controls. He opened the door to China and to Russia. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the guy was a, well, the guy was a fucking commie yeah. compared to that. And that really is how much it has shifted. What, what, I'm, what I feel I'm unqualified to do, and which I don't know if anybody could do, um, is is to know whether this was an intricately planned, uh, down intricately planned down to the last detail. And, you well, know, you've nothing got a, is. You've right? got you, you've got you know Doctor Evil in the back going, yes, yeah. I made millions. But see, that's how or that's how they invalidate the analysis. They they call it a conspiracy theory, right? You know, and so. And we all want, and, and by the way, human nature, we want a conspiracy theory. It's the same reason we have religion. Yeah. We need a story that ties up all the right. loose ends and makes us feel that we have a place in the world that's understandable, even if it's under somebody's thumb. Right. So, so I, I don't know. Is it that? Or is there something in the evolution of human nature that pushes people in these kinds of directions as they have the technological ability to arrange their world without interacting with things they don't want to think about or people they don't like. So I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't even know if it's important other than, you know, it being sort of trivially interesting. What's at work? The question is, what can you do about it? And yeah. that, that I don't have any, you know, silver bullet for because, once again, there's all sorts of different currents flowing through this uh, muddy Boston Harbor that needs to be cleaned up, but the caucus is gone. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's I, I personally don't. I, I mean, not to be a, a naysayer, but I, I feel like American political system is so corrupted at this point that the the most that can be hoped for are these these cosmetic shifts like Obamacare, and which, as you say, is a distraction from the main issue. And there's no way in the system as it exists to confront the main issue because the pharmaceutical company has the country by the balls. And the minute you start talking about single, single payer, suddenly, you're, as you say, you're marginalized as a socialist, as a crazy person, and you're out of the conversation. So, or or uh, who was the guy from New Hampshire who ran for president a few years Howard ago? Dean. The the scream. Ah, uh, but you see, there's an example of how we have a sort of a popular belief that mm-hmm. the scream undid him. Right. He was screwed before the scream by his progressive ideals. No, oh, by running a shitty campaign. 
You think so? Yeah. I thought he was doing really well. well. He did some things really well. He he, he, he mobilized hire, young people. Hire, yeah, he he mobilized a bunch of young people. Got an online thing he's going. A, he right? Really, the first he and Joe Trippi, uh, who's a, a guy who's yeah. highly entertaining and I've worked mm. with in the past, um, really got their arms around the online stuff for um, for a uh, you know first time significantly for a campaign which has grown since then. But you know he fucked up Iowa. He fucked up Iowa, mm-hmm. which, which um, and, and for, you know, small organizing reasons, he had a bunch of inexperienced people who didn't understand how the caucuses really worked. And it halted his momentum mm-hmm. in a way that say, oh, maybe he isn't so bright and shiny. And people who had a lot more experience and a lot more, you know, tread on their tread on their tires uh, were able to win. That was just. So where was this? Didn't the scream supposedly happen in Iowa? Was it was it, it was, it was, it was a, election night in Iowa? He says, "No, that's okay. We're going on to New Hampshire." Yeah, right. <coughs> and, but that and that was used to say this guy's a nutcase. It was used and, to say he's a nutcase. But but if you peel back the layers, it's not why he lost. Well, it's not why he lost Iowa clearly because it happened at the end of that. But that was it. it, it was like Dukakis with that silly helmet on the tank. You know, you do something, they're trying to build a narrative about you, right? right. And if you do something that, that gives them the image or the soundbite for that narrative that they've already been preparing, you know, Dukakis is a loser who wouldn't, you know, go for the death penalty even if his wife was raped and, you know, remember that right. whole thing. And then you show him looking like a doofus in a tank with a helmet that's too big for him. It's perfect. It gives the image to the story they're already telling. So with yeah, Dean, I, it's like he's too radical. He's the, these young people love him because he's crazy like they are. And then there's the scream, and ah, we got it. Although it, from what I read, he didn't. It wasn't even a serious scream. They took that. The yeah, crowd was really it. loud, and the mic was in front of him, and it's like bullshit. Nah, he was just going, yeah, yeah let's go. What, but 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 you know, if you if you look at the you know the practitioner side of it. He was, uh, you know... It, All right, here's, it, here's, the, here's it, what it, you're it, really saying. If he'd hired me, he would have gone uh, on. I don't, I don't like playing that. <laughs> I don't like playing in that arena. But um, he... Uh, it, 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 it forms a very satisfying narrative. Yeah. Just like any conspiracy theory does. Yeah. To explain, oh, they did him in because he did this scream and then the, you know, the forces of evil, you know, Fox News wasn't around then, but whatever yeah. the functional equivalent was, hung that around his neck and isn't that a shame? You know, it, it's um, it's great story, just didn't happen to be true. The same thing with the, you know, Obama's uh, first uh, campaign in the primaries. There was, and I got into a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a fight, but a little bit of a dispute with Ezra Klein, who's this yeah, I know. guy who used to work for the Post, and right. I don't know where he is now, but he was like one started of the first his blogger. own thing. Well, yeah, he, yeah well, but he he became uh, known as a as sort of an Uber blogger uh, right. during the the um, uh, Obama campaign. Yeah, he was so, on Rachel Maddow all the time. Yeah, he was, and he he had a great followership. I don't on, like him on the on the Post. So he, he tweeted that he didn't. He thought or he said. When our book first came out, he tweeted something like, well, I haven't read it, but it sounds like uh, it sounds like a bad theory to me. Like, fuck you, dude. (laughs) If you haven't read it, it? shut the fuck up. You know, I I always liked him before that. But now now I think he's an idiot. Well, so, um, you know, he was he spoke at Reed College. I'm a Reed graduate. Uh So um, 
there was a dinner that I got invited to um, beforehand, and he's at the same table I am, and there's some conversation about the Obama campaign. Now, one of the things he made his bones on was following the transformative, uh, you know, Obama campaign and how it changed everything. It was the most exciting campaign of our time. And don't get me wrong, there's a there's a lot to like, but I I meant the I did mention that. Well, let's just not forget. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton lost that campaign just as much as Obama won it, and he took great umbrage because it was mm-hmm. like you know it was uh, it, it was like I was attacking the foundation of maybe of of his reason for being. Ah, uh, right. But I said no, no. I mean, everyone looks back and said he's he's a transformative figure and he's first African American and he caught the imagination and he got all the online stuff. But um, Hillary Clinton had no game after Super Tuesday. Her entire campaign strategy was based on the idea that she was inevitable, she'd have everything wrapped up by Super Tuesday, and then we'd all merrily go on our way. Well, got past Super Tuesday, and he's still around, and people are kind of liking him, and she is completely out of money. She had no staff in the remaining states. She Mm. had no message other than I'm inevitable. And if you remember, after Super Tuesday, um, Obama, like, ran off this string of primary victories, largely in smaller states, but where he had, he he was an organizer, so he had troops there, and, and he had this huge run. But then she gained her footing a little at the end, too late, and he was offering to like do dishes and wash windows for super delegates if they could barely if they could you know see their way to giving him their vote and he didn't have the um, nomination wrapped up until like ten minutes before the convention he barely dragged his ass over the uh, dragged his ass over the uh, the finish line mm. and then he had the good fortune to be you know running against John McCain. Um, who and that whole Sarah Palin thing? Yeah. See, now there's a great example. This is what happens to Republicans, even interesting Republicans, and there are interesting Republicans. They think that well, except I can't be interesting if I want to get out of the primary. So yeah. John McCain, Maverick. I mean, he was genuinely interesting. Yeah. He actually had a vision into some big problems, like campaign finance and all the rest, yeah. and um, and were uh, you know was ready to. Uh, ready to do something about it. And then he had to sell his soul to the devil to get the nomination. And then he, you know, uh, under that same theory, you know, made the disastrous choice of Sarah Palin. And by the time that he uh, was running against Obama, there was like no reason to be interested in him. Yeah, you're right. I, I remember a time when I really admired him. And I obviously I'm like, you know, yeah. radical left, but, uh, you know, I'm off the scale to the I, left. I, I, but well, I, I admired the guy for so a So what do you think of Rand Paul? You know, I I think Rand Paul's making the same mistake that McCain made, which is that he is learning to play the game, and that's uh, erasing the most interesting parts of him. He's he's refusing to fess up to the things that he used to be willing to talk about because he's getting into the big leagues now, and, you know, that's the way the system is. So, you know, I admire his father. Uh, not that I'd want him to be president. Right. Uh, in fact, I have the same literary agent as his father. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is an agent of mine, interesting guy. He represents me, other people as well, but uh, among the mix, me, Rand Paul, or, uh, Ron, Paul. Ron Paul, and Larry Flint. 
<laughs> no, I want to go to that yeah, Christmas party, that. you know? What? You don't? <laughs> no, there is that, none. There is none. You, let me tell you something. I'd sell my soul to go to that Christmas <laughs> Could you party. Imagine Are the you conversation? kidding me? That'd be awesome. A few lines of Coke with Larry Flint, and <laughs> you're off and running. Um, so... We, you know, we haven't even we, like we just jumped into the middle of this here. We, I wanted to ask how you got into this and what you yeah, studied sure. at Reed, and you know, how when did you sell your soul to the devil? I mean, well, let me let me <laughs> let me let me state for the record uh-huh. that I am extraordinarily fortunate. Uh-huh. I do not work for people who I don't think are the best choice or for right. things I don't think are right that's the way and, it's the only way is, to do that job well it is you know people have to make a living and feed their family sure. and they're not always that lucky well and, but, and a political consultant is a lot like a lawyer you know people pay you to make their case yeah and you don't who cares if you agree with it you just make it as well as you can that's right that's the bulk of the business yeah. that's not me right I, what I, do you think of steve schmidt by the way who was mccain's i, I don't know i mean you know if <laughs> the uh he was, I, I certainly, I should, I should I certainly, say for listeners, I, I, he I was McCain's campaign, campaign advisor, manager. Chief, he's, yeah. um, it, and he's, he sort of recommended that he nominate uh, Palin, Sarah Palin. But, but he seems like a really smart, decent guy. Well, and he repented of that. Yeah. He was the first one to realize, oh fuck, yeah, this person is really, really bad. But you can't take it back. Well, you can't I take mean, it back. On, I don't know. I don't know him well enough. He seems like an interesting guy. Yeah. But you know what we have is Steve Schmidt's version of Steve Schmidt. That's you true. You know when you look at uh, what was the um, uh, oh right that uh, movie the movie and the book that it came from not Rebound uh, yeah and uh, Woody Harrelson Woody played Harrelson him right played him. Yeah, yeah so he was the source for most of those stories right. so uh, you know he seemed very attractive he's obviously a smart guy on yeah. on shaping a message <laughs> yeah, right so, yeah so who knows who he really is yeah. uh, but but I just don't know well him. I have to believe that he is a decent guy and I'll tell you why for me the the, the one thing that will make me forgive everything else is self-deprecating sense of humor. And I've seen enough of that from him that I'm, I, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I know him or anything like that, but you can't, you can't effectively make fun of yourself if you're full of shit. You know? Uh, yes, I agree. Well, first of all, yeah, self-deprecation, I think, is one of the most attractive traits in the human race. You can do it if you're full of shit, if you're Meta full of shit. <laughs> That's good. Full of meta shit. Or, <laughs> or that would work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know there are people who are smart enough to like do that as a ploy, but I can't. I maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm full of shit here because I, I I have to believe that you would sense that it's put up. Well, yes. You know, like his writer made that joke. You know, like Obama makes fun of himself. You know, yeah, his ears, it's, and it's, it's easy. But I believe it. No, no, it, it is great. If, 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 you know, if you don't have any, you know, as Apollo said, know thyself. Yeah. Uh, if, uh, if you don't have any vision into yourself to the extent that you can see your foibles or make a little fun of it, then you're a putz. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a high likelihood that you're a complete putz. Right. And not um, a meta putz. No, not a meta putz. <laughs> and a genuine putz. And not even a schmuck, but a putz. So you worked on Charles Schumer's campaign, I hear. My first boss in politics was Chuck Schumer. Right, right. Who's still in the Senate, right? He's the king of everything. Yeah. Uh, and I once, you know, um, um, he, was, he was the best entry job you could have in politics. He is the best retail campaigner I have ever met. Really? He is, you know, he's the smartest 
guy in the room generally. Mm. Part of his problem sometimes is he knows he's the smartest guy in the room. So, you know, he, he and, and when I first went to work for him, it was his first term in Congress. Mm. And, you know, he'd never had a real job. He was, you know, first in his class in high school, Midwood High School in Brooklyn. Mm. Went to Harvard. I think he was first in his class or, you know, way up there in Harvard. Went to Harvard Law School. Was Archibald Cox's teaching assistant Oy. during the Watergate era. Really? Um, went uh, straight from there to the assembly. Was in the assembly for six years. Went to Congress. So, so it was all about politics. It, it was all about politics. He's very hardworking, very ambitious. Was his father in politics? No. Mm. Abe was an exterminator. Oh, okay. So uh, it was one of those. Selma was a, was, was a housewife. Right. And they lived in Midwood. Uh, used to drink orange juice. It's like and, a Clinton trajectory. Abe and Selma. Well, yes, although, I mean, a, a classic sort of Brooklyn Jewish story of you yeah. know, revering education. My right. kids will do better than me. Mm-hmm. Have a sense of public service. You know. But Chuck was the, I mean, <laughs> he, he. my early training with him is, Here's how you work a Waldbaums. So Waldbaums is a uh, is a grocery chain in Brooklyn. He said, "Okay, here's how you campaign in there. You gotta go in through the exit because you're gonna miss the people who are in line. And so you work your way through the checkout line, and then you've got to do the aisles in a serpentine way. But first, you gotta check: do they have a podium? Because you know these old." Grocery stores would have a manager and a podium and a PA. So you got to look at the podium. And if you know the guy behind the PA, he'll announce you. (laughs) Chuck Schumer's in the house. (laughs) And that's how you work. So he had everything down to a a science, Uh how to work a subway. And he would do this all the time. And he was a natural. uh, Beyond a natural. And uh, he also had the best constituent service of anyone. I remember I went to a meeting. My, My first job with him was as a scheduler. So my job was to know that if there are three people meeting on a street corner, I was to know why and to make sure that there was a fourth that was either Chuck or staff. Right. And I remember going to a meeting and his successor in the assembly, Danny Feldman, uh, told this story. He said, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I see Mrs. Schwartz here. Uh, it was a tenant union meeting in uh, Ocean Parkway, right? And I see Mrs. Schwartz here and I'm remembering that, you know, the last time I saw Mrs. Schwartz, she, I asked her, so Mrs. Schwartz, how are you? Is there anything I can do for you? Are you having any problems in the neighborhood? And she said, well, if you, it's, it's awful hot. I mean, you know, it's been 90 <laughs> degrees. Could you do something about that? And he says, well, Mrs. Schwartz, I, I can help you with a number of things, but I, you know, I, I can't change the weather. And she looked at me and she said, Chuck Schumer would change the weather. <laughs> <laughs> and so he'd, he had the greatest constituent service. I, I took a call once, um, you know, somebody saying, my father slipped on the ice and thank God he's all right, but he's got false teeth and they flew out of his mouth and into the sewer. And I was wondering if Congressman Schumer would help us. <laughs> and by God, I, you know, I, I didn't think we were going to be able to do it. But if yeah. I didn't call the Department of uh, Sanitation and, uh, find those teeth. And, and at least put the request in and say, we yeah. tried Mrs. Knafko, right. uh, there'd be trouble. So, Well, he, that's decent. I mean, that's cool to hear that because that's what the job's supposed to be, but yeah. rarely is, right? I mean, you know. He ran out every ground ball. That's and, great. And I can tell you, I'm not a, much of a betting man. I play some poker, but I don't like bet. But I can tell you with 100% assurance that you should never, ever, ever bet against Chuck Schumer mm-hmm. on anything. doesn't matter how improbable. When he ran for Senate 
and he was in the um, he was going to run against Al D'Amato, and he was running in the primary against uh, Liz Holtzman and uh, I think Jerry Ferraro might have been in it. I can't mm-hmm. remember who. George Stephanopoulos was out here uh, during the primary, uh, and I met him at a, at a cocktail party, um, and. Uh, you know, he, he cut his teeth in New York politics. And I said, so what do you, what do you think? And he, says, and he says, who do you think is going to win? And I said, it's going to be Chuck. No one thinks it's going to be Chuck. And he said, that's right. Never bet. He also said, never bet against Chuck Schumer. Mm. So but it was great training. Um, but I just fell into it. So uh, back to your uh, original question. So you went to Reed College, which of, is I'm like... the king of tangents, as you can see. Well, you're in the right place for that. So Reed College is... Uh, Basically, a place for really smart, eccentric people, right? Is that in upper class generally because it's private and not uh, not a lot of scholarship students, probably. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, they did have, uh, and now they have more of it because at that time they didn't have an endowment. Uh, yeah. Paul Bragdon, who was the president there for a while, transformed the financial status of the college, which had always been hand to mouth. They really mm. needed the tuition to pay the right. bills to keep the lights on. Right. And he started the path where they now have a, a sizable endowment. But um, I, uh, and, and by the way, one of the dirty little secrets that, that counselors in poor areas do not tell their smart students, that if you're really, really smart, you will get a cheaper education at Harvard than you will at whatever your state school is because these are high-cost, high-aid um, places, and they are looking for, for, for kids from poor backgrounds yeah. to look respectable. They've got slots, and, especially and, if you're a minority. Yes, they have yeah. slots, and they don't get filled yeah. because no one is taking that smart kid in you know, some inner-city school and says, come with me. You, you, we're going to get you ready for Harvard. And yeah. that's a real problem. That's a tragedy. But yeah. at any rate— um, I, uh, you know, did the usual tour of uh, schools uh, in the Northeast because I'm from New York, in New York, New Jersey, and um, and a friend of my father's, one of my father's best friend, was a sociologist named Saul Levine, and uh, he was very well known. There was a school of sociology, not like a physical school, but a a, yeah. a train of thought of sociology mm-hmm. that he founded, and I couldn't tell you what it is. Uh, but he was a professor of the university, and I think the University of Boston, which meant if he woke up in the morning and said, you know, I think I'd like to teach calculus this year, they'd go, yes, Dr. Levine, you bet. So um, I stayed at his house when I was in Boston. Connections. <laughs> it's all about the connections. So the, the reason that uh, I know him is my dad, who died um, just on New Year's Eve, oh, uh, grew sorry. up with him. Uh, he had a good long run, yeah. 94 years. That's, uh, that's a great gift, you did, know, to leave to your kids. Like, hey, I had a great time. Don't worry about well, it. Well, and he, you know, was in the Manhattan Project, and he helped oh, found really? the generic drug industry. He did some crazy shit. No kidding. Let's talk about your dad yeah, when, but, when uh, we get so, to So, at any rate, so uh, that's why Saul grew up with him. Um, and yeah. um, so he said, well, what are you looking for at a school? And I said, well, I, I, I don't, you know, I'd like it to be small in liberal arts. Uh, I don't want to belong to a fraternity. I don't care about sports. I don't want to join, you know, the ROTC or anything like that. I just want to have something that's really good academically and pretty much leave me alone. And he said, have you thought of Reed College? And I said, well, I've never heard of Reed College. Mm. Is it good? He says, well, I'll put it this way. I'm on uh, some admissions committee for Harvard graduate schools. And when we see a Reed graduate, we automatically add a full point to the grade point average. Mm. And I went, okay, interesting. Yeah. And then I got into a number of schools, and Reed was uh, 3,000 miles away. 
And at that time in my life, I was pretty desperately in need of a do-over. And being 3,000 miles away seemed like a good thing. Hmm. That's how I ended up at Reed, where I was a, wait for it, theater major. Really? Yes. Interesting. And a couple of things I want to ask you there. Sure. Because, you know, I, I went to Hobart College in upstate New York. Oh, yeah. Which is similar to Reed. It's a small yeah. private Hobart, school. Hobart, Bard. Yeah. I got into Bennington. That was the... Yeah. the was, Me too. I applied to Bennington, Bard. Uh, Bowdoin? No, not Bowdoin. There was a Colgate. Colgate. Uh, yeah. You know, these the sort of small... I got into Colby too, you know. Colby College. Yeah. yeah where, in Maine. In Maine. Right, right. Yeah. Amherst is, you know, mm-hmm. kind of similar... Um, but you know, in retrospect, I mean, I, I ended up going to Hobart. I went to three different high schools and, you know, had like chaos through, through high school. Um, my GPA was not great cause I was not really paying attention, but my SATs were great. So it was one of those situations, yeah, right? Big. Same sort of deal. And then later, you know, I, I regretted, uh, on some level, I regretted going to Hobart because the student body at Hobart was really pretty dull. It was it was like Republicans. They were all these frat boys, and George Bush's niece was in my class, and the heir to the Spalding fortune, and you know all these kind of like Hamilton. Yeah, that kind of scene. By the way, Diddle Diddle Bush was her name. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not kidding. This is the daughter of the I think of the, it's the a Colorado name and one. an instruction. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> pastime. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, later, imperative. that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> imperative. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, it, I, it ended up being a good experience because the students were so dull that I came to the attention of the faculty and became like the favorite and, you know, had a great experience. Um, but when I heard about Reed and started meeting people from there and I thought, man, that's where I should have gone. That would have been a good fit. I would have had friends in the student body as opposed, you know, maybe some faculty as well, but I would have found my people there, which I didn't really at Hobart. Well, I always said, you know, I got a great education at Reed and some of the classes were good too. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> interesting and, people. And, and, and you're, it, you're it, lifelong friends with somebody you met there, right? Uh, yes. Well, I think that's true generally though. You know, the, the friends you make in college are the ones that tend to stick more. See, I don't have a single friend from well, college. You, 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 you fucked up in where you went to school. You know, but yeah. the first college interview I had, well, first of all, let me say it, Reed. For a while, Reed had brilliant admissions uh, folks. Mm. And they would pick people like me who had A's and D's. Right. You said you needed a makeover. Why? Well, that's, that, that wasn't the academic Were you a gangster? Issue. No, I... Um, not even sure how to describe it. I, I was very insular. I didn't have any friends. I was not very happy. You got uh, caught jerking I, off by your mom. No, never did. <laughs> you never did. Huh? Never did. So you're another loose yeah, cannon. Yeah, I'm another loose cannon. <laughs> yes. That's, but um, it, it just wasn't a, it, it wasn't a good situation. Just leave it like It's not like right. I was abused or I had alcoholic parents or right. anything like that. But nothing really. I was really smart as well read. I, I had a way with words. I knew that, but things weren't really working out for me. Well, you know, at that age, um, a lot of a lot of cultures have uh, a ceremony where the boy or the girl becomes an adult, uh, and it's marked with the fasting and sometimes the use of hallucinogens and rituals and you know talking with the shaman and all that. And you get or a in new- my case, doing the hokey pokey and the alley cat at your bar mitzvah. <laughs> Well, that's that's another way to do it, the hokey pokey. 
um, and you get a new name and mm-hmm. y- you have a new life. It's a new life. Do you know Geronimo, the famous yeah. Apache warrior? You know what his name was as a child? Dick Schwartz. Fat boy. <laughs> oh, yeah, just as good. <laughs> it's pretty much the same. Well, you know, but and, and some kids need this. Now, my middle son, I've, I've, I have, uh, I, I shudder to say, uh, five children. Wow. And I have three older boys who are 33, 29, and 27. So you converted from Judaism to Mormonism. Uh, and I have uh, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old girl. Wow. Uh, do-over life. Wow. And um, my middle son, Sam, um, who lives down in Ashland now, I mean, he is, I, I took him aside and said, you know, uh, love you, would love to have you nearby. I'm going to give you some advice I think is really good advice. Go to college somewhere that's not here, somewhere where it takes... A, a concerted effort and at least a day to get back home. Right. Someplace where you don't really know people. Yeah. I am like you, um, or, or you are like me. You need a do-over. And he did. And um, and he he did. He went far enough away so that he was able to sort of reinvent himself. So that's, you know, that was the that was the deciding factor in mm. me, me coming out to read. Um, so you studied theater. I, I studied theater, not out of any plan, but it interested me. And I was, you know, I majored in undecided and, and got into some plays. And oh, yeah. I kind of like this. So I became an actor and a director. So, uh, you know, a lot of people say politics is theater. I think Frank Zappa said politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. Yes, or uh, Washington, D.C. is like Hollywood for ugly for people. For ugly people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard that so, one too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and my interest, you know, uh, a big chunk of my interest in politics is, is I wouldn't say theatrical, but why do people feel the way they do? Why right. do they think the way they do? Interacting you, with your how, audience. How can, you, how can you move somebody from A to B? Now, that can be on an emotional level in a play, or it can be in a political level saying, you know, you think that this is what we should do, but... Really, if you think about it, isn't this what we should do? And here's what you could do about it by voting a particular way. So there, there are clear parallels. And, yeah. and, and it, it, you know, I had sort of a moment of, of, of realization in politics. So when I was a kid, like in junior high school, I was not interested in sports. I was interested in politics, just as a spectator sport. So, you know, I always followed it. I was always interested in it. And in college, um, my, you know, and I, but I'd always thought I had this idea that, you know, you could get involved in public policy and uh, formulate 10-point plans to uh, transform the socio-political relationship between the great powers and blah, blah, blah. And I do interest that. And, I, and I, I've worked inside government and I've worked in, in the campaign side. Mm. And then I remember watching the, um, I believe it was the second presidential debate between uh, Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale. And a journalist named Edwin Newman was the moderator. I remember him. And, um, you know, Mondale, you know, I think Robin Williams once said he was like the political version of Elmer Fudd. You know, I want to yeah. help the poor and the helpless. But, um, you know, he had his closing statement. And, uh, you know, it was kind of dull, but, you know, okay, great. This guy could be president. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with him. He seems to know a lot of stuff. And then it was Ronald Reagan's turn. And it seems cruel to say it now, but he uh, appeared to have a full-blown Alzheimer's um, episode. And, you know, he starts off, well, me and Nancy were were driving up the Pacific Highway, and we came to Big Sur, and and we looked out, and and 
and, and he sort of trailed off into nothing. And it was just sort of rambling, and there was no point to it. And, you know, you know, they cut away to Walter Mondale, who's looking like, oh, shit, this is really embarrassing. I mean, I feel bad for the guy. And, and Edward Newman, if I recall correctly, actually cut him short. Well, thank you, Mr. President, before his time was up. And America, as if with one voice, pointed at him and said, him, I want his finger on the button, the drooling guy. <laughs> and, and it occurred to me... <laughs> that if you're interested in change or, you know, whatever you get into politics to do, uh -huh. that's a lot more important than 10-point plans. And that's when I really said, you know, that's what interests me. That being what? What makes people vote for somebody? Right. What is it about somebody that makes you give them your, your franchise, your yeah. trust, the authority over your life, and it is clearly not an intellectually based exercise. Yeah, and that fascinated me, and and that kind of thing fascinated me in theater as well. So yeah. you know, I, I saw those kind of those those two things coming together, and then I was able to get a job in politics, absolutely by luck. So you moved back to New York after Reed. Yes, to work as an actor at oh. slash cab driver. Uh huh. Because I was a New York cabbie. Um, and my girlfriend from Reed had also moved back to New York. She was from New York. She worked for a woman named Carol Bellamy, uh, who was the city council president at the time. And somebody, uh, a friend of ours who worked on Bellamy's staff, went over to work for a, in the district office of a first-term congressman in Brooklyn. And he had been through five schedulers in his first six months because it was just impossible. Chuck Schumer. And uh, they thought maybe I had the personality that might be able to put up with this or get some control over it. And, and I got the job and it was like $17,000 a year, like American money. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Doing something that, you know, people would do for free. Right. And I wake up every morning and, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for a lot of things, but, but I have a job that people think is so cool that they would do it for free if they could get away with it. Right. And I get paid. Yeah. Shit. That's great. And cool. I and I get to not do evil things. I mean, <laughs> other people may see them as evil. Um, How do you know when when the offer is evil? How do you know when to say no? It just doesn't feel right to me. And and by the way, it it can take you into sort of weird areas. Yeah. You, you could end up working for people and saying, "Wow, really? You're 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 helping Uber?" And uh, and uh, and I'll say, "Yeah." Because I, I have sort of a three, and I don't do lobbying. I'm not a lobbyist. I do some, I have some clients who just need something done and need someone smart to help them figure out how to do it. But my criteria is it a, is a good thing for the community or people. Mm -hmm. um, is there a path to victory? And is there something I can do to help get down that path? Right. And are you a specialist in media or in the, the political strategy or just sort of whatever, yes. all of it, right? Yeah, I mean, I have done everything there is to do in politics. Mm -hmm. And generally... Other than assassination. That's, oh, okay. No. <laughs> moving right along. Moving along. <laughs> moving right along. It, it depends on how you define the term. <laughs> political but, assassination. But I, 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 you know... So have you? I, I have am you known done, as the guy to get if somebody just needs killing. Really? Like, have you done dig up the dirt? You know, campaigns, the Corovian, Lee Atwater style stuff. I, John McCain's black baby. I uh, see. I, see, I wouldn't do that. Mm. But I do think that politics is a choice. Now, I had this argument. Actually, well, not argument. I had this conversation with my nine-year-old. 
Um, so I uh, worked um, uh, on a campaign here in, in Oregon, and there was a radio ad we were doing, which was comparative. Um, you know, first half was about our our guy, just terrific. Second half was about the opponent. You know, terrible to do these bad things. Yeah. And I'm driving my nine-year-old, Aoife, to uh, uh, her martial arts class. And so I'm listening to the ad to approve it. This is in the waning days of the campaign. And I listen to the ad, and I say, okay, that's going to be fine. And from the back seat is this voice. You shouldn't do that. And I said, what do you mean? Well, you shouldn't say bad things about the other person. You, if you can't get elected because of what you want to do, then you shouldn't run. Nine years old here. And I said, well, yes, but I think politics is a choice. And, and this is what I do believe. I, I sometimes just, for fun, if I'm doing a training, saying not only do I think that there's a place for negative advertising or negative campaigning, you have a moral responsibility to engage in it. Because if Let's say you're running against someone who's an axe murderer, and they're running to be the axe commissioner. They will not tell you, and by the way, I'm an axe murderer, so I'd love to get me a hand on some of them axes. Is that something that the voters should know about before they make their choice? I would say yes. And okay, so if but it's that, true, that's a pretty self-serving if, example there. What if you're talking about someone who uh, uh, has uh, sex outside of marriage? But they're not a right-wing, moralistic kind of uh, candidate. No, I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't use that? No. Even if it fell in your lap? Yep. Really? Oh, okay. the shit I haven't used so it's a, is so much more fun than the shit I have. So, so that gets to what I was asking about how you know it's evil, right? If, if it's relevant to the position... If it's true, first. If right. it's true. Uh-huh. Second, is it relevant to this person's service? And it... And, and relevancy is, you know, it's an elastic term. You could, you could say, well, you know, yeah. this person it's a character has, issue. has, well, has, has misappropriated money and, and they will have the ability. Well, that's to always relevant. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I would, I would, I would say that, but you know, how do I know it's wrong? I just, you know, I just have to, I have to weigh it against my own, you know, values and say, I, so, I don't want to do that. But. Would you be uh, a viable candidate? Fuck no. Right. Well, first of all, I have no interest in running. Right. But aside from that, if you did and people started digging into you, would they find stuff that would would disqualify you? They would. They could potentially find things that would be noteworthy, (laughs) Uh, perhaps embarrassing. Yeah. I don't think particularly relevant, but not everybody plays by my rules. Yeah. I would say that, um, well, you know, it's fascinating. People will run for office. Uh, who knows what they see when they look in the mirror? You know, and, yeah. and, and you say to them, when, when the terrible thing comes up, um, you know, well, what were you thinking? Were you thinking that you were invisible, that people weren't going to mention this? But people have no good insight into to their And these are people themselves. who are desperately courting the spotlight. De- but that's yeah. the phrase, desperately. Yeah. So yeah. desperation gives you blind spots. And I, the older and crankier I get, I divide people who run for office into two categories. People who want to do something and people who want to be somebody. Right. And I have less and less patience over time with people who want to be something, yeah. be somebody. 
and I'm always more interested in people who want to do something. Let, let me read you a, a thing. I was I was reading this this afternoon for this book I'm writing, and it just popped out at me because of this conversation I knew we'd be having. Having if one were to devise if one were to devise a political system from scratch, knowing something of history and a great deal about human nature. The sort of person that one would chiefly want, if possible, to exclude from power would be the sort of person who most desires it and who is most willing to make a great effort to acquire it. Yet our system obliges us to elevate to office precisely those persons who have the ego-besotted effrontery to ask us to do so. It's true. The people, and this bing, gets bing, to bing, what bing, you're bing, saying, bing, bing. right? Now, the funny thing about this, this little passage I highlighted ends with, uh, let's see, in a better, purer world, the world that cannot be, ambition would be an absolute disqualification for political authority. Now, here's the funny thing about that. You alluded to book, the, my book and, you know, my, th- my thing is prehistory. How did people live in prehistory, right? And the first book's about how we interacted sexually. And the book I'm working on now is about other aspects of social life and prehistory and how that relates to the current world. And there's a chapter on politics. And what's so interesting is that for 95% of our, li- uh, of our existence as a species... We lived in these hunter-gatherer groups, which have, no matter where they are in the world, the jungles, the Arctic, the Australian outback, they have certain universalities. And one of them is what anthropologists call, um, uh, ext- uh, what's the word, uh, e- uh, egalitarianism, but there's a fierce, fierce egalitarianism. So they're not only egalitarian, but they will go to extremes to make sure that nobody uh, attains a position of, of coercive power over other people. And leaders are those who are respected, not those who seek or demand respect, right? And in fact, the, the number one disqualification for any position of leadership is any indication whatsoever that you desire to be in a position of leadership. That's considered absurd, ridiculous, and dangerous. So, I mean, there are all these mechanisms built in to stop those people from getting any power. If there was a way to systematize that and incorporate it into the political infrastructure (laughs) of this country, it would be awesome. I I mean, I just could not agree more. Okay, good. And you're the guy to do this. Okay, I've had this idea. I've been joking with friends about this, but, you know, you're the (laughs) guy. I mean, you're going to be busy, but it's it's an idea. <laughs> the idea is uh, to nominate someone for president who has absolutely no interest in being president, someone nobody's ever heard of, some guy who's just smart and makes good decisions and has the sort of ego uh, solidity and integration that he wouldn't he or she wouldn't get weirded out by the position and they could do it and then leave and be fine. And so do this whole campaign. I imagine the ads. The guy sitting on the shitter reading the paper, and suddenly you're there with the camera, like, you know, da-da-da for president. And he's like, get the hell out of here. I'm taking a dump. The whole thing is that this guy does not want to be president, and that's why you should vote for him. I mean, I mean there's this guy named Mike Round uh-huh. who ran for president. He's this weird guy from Alaska, and his ad was he was walking on this sort of gravelly beach, and he was just walking towards you. And he just stared at you for a while. 
And then he just walked away. And there was just, <laughs> it, it, it was great. And there was something affected by it. Yeah. But, but, and, and, and generally speaking, I think you're right. I mean, there's something disfiguring about the, the, the ego needs of people who really want to be put in charge of, of everything. Having said that, I think there has to be some element of the ability to climb the greasy pole which is necessary in a democracy that what we are not we are not trying to select uh, the philosopher king here we're trying to have a pluralistic system where people have to hash things out because not everyone's going to agree with everybody and there is sort of a, there is a certain set of both social and political skills that are appropriate to that process happening well that also uh, campaigning uh, lends itself to. Now, the problem is we've got all the wrong part and none of the right part, whereas you want most of the right part, a little bit of the wrong part because right. that's the grease that makes the, the, the gears um, turn. But, but by and large, yes. I mean, more and more, I'm just sick to death of people who want to be somebody and have the fucking clue yeah. of what they want to do. All right, I'm back with Mark Wiener. He uh, had to rush off to pick up his daughter, and uh, we agreed to pick up two days later. So it's two days later for us, 10 seconds later for you. Uh, we were just, I, we had a microphone malfunction here. We were talking about uh, this case of the woman who uh, left her, let her kid, he wanted to find his way home in New York. And she gave him a subway fare and had a, a note with a address written down. And a, he had a phone and the, cell, the phone number and everything. And she let him make his way home. And uh, then she wrote an article about it for New York Magazine. And the fucking sky fell on her. And then, but because of all the controversy, she got a book uh, contract. <laughs> and she wrote a She's book about it. She's the opposite of a tiger mom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Feral parenting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a guy on recently, uh, Peter Gray, who's an expert in education. And he's particularly interested in how hunter-gatherers raise children, which is like the natural sort of way for our species to be educated versus what we do. And his, he, one of his major points is we don't let kids learn the way they're designed to learn, which is by challenging themselves, being in mixed age groups, right? Because you think about, you've got your daughter's nine, you said, right? Mm -hmm. So like, imagine how much she looks up to a 12 year old, you know, when you're nine, a 12 year old has all the answers, you know, a 40 year old, who knows a 40 year old may as well be another species. You well, know? you know, in my, in my daughter's elementary school, Dunaway, um, they pair up kindergartners with fourth graders. So Ooh. my kindergartner, my youngest daughter is six, and she has a fourth grader, I think named Sophie or something like that, who comes and reads to her and, you know, they, they, they form a little bit of a link. It's oh, not like they go to school together. That's but great. You have that kind of multi-generational thing. I, I, I think that's terrific. For both sides. For both yeah. sides. Oh, absolutely. The nurturing and the, yeah. And, and you know, every, every you know, Every, every kid is different. Um, well, not every kid is different, but you know, I always say... the same, little bastards. Well, you know, I always said, I have three older sons, and, and of two of them, we always said that if we took Jordan, um, who I was just talking to a minute ago, um, well, if we took Sam and we gave him uh, 100 bucks and dropped him in Eugene 
and said, okay, you need to get yourself back to Portland, we would probably get a call, you know, this is back then. He's very capable. He's a great guy now. But at that time, you'd probably we'd figure we'd get a call in Salem saying, you know, can you come pick me up? If we gave Jordan um, 200 bucks and dropped him in Eugene, he'd come back a month later having been to Peking or Beijing <laughs> with a thousand bucks in his pocket, <laughs> you know? Go. So yeah, everyone's got their own, you know, <laughs> level of yeah. uh, interaction. And right? mysterious scars and yes, a pregnant exactly. girlfriend. Yeah. And a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. So you, you uh, started to mention that you've got, um, would you, how did you put it? You've saddled up a horse or something? I saddled up a hobby horse. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, cause we were talking in, in the earlier part of our conversation, um, you know, how do you choose clients? And I was, mm. you know, uh, preening a bit saying that I, you know, I'm lucky that I get to work only on causes or candidates who I think are the right side. Right. And, and that is true. And that is very lucky of me. And I, I, I'm, I don't dismiss the fact that a lot of people have to make a living by doing things they don't agree with or they hate. But occasionally I'll come across something because I'm reading the paper or something that just sticks in my craw and it becomes an issue I work on. And so I've got one now, which I'm sure if I take to the next level will get me a tremendous amount of hate mail and, 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 and enmity. And it's based on my thought that allowing children, say up through high school, to play full contact football is child abuse. It's, it's unimaginable, given what we know about the neurological impact on, on that sport, on adults in the NFL, much less young forming brains and, uh, and, and bodies, you would, you would have more justification in making smoking a pack of cigarettes every day a team sport than allowing <laughs> children yeah. to do this. And it's... It, it, and, and I know that it, it runs against culture, and you'll I'll get a lot of arguments that, you know, this is, um, uh, you know, a way that especially um, marginalized kids or kids from, you know, uh, you know African-American or, or minority backgrounds, this is what engages them in school, so somehow it's racist. And, um, but but it, it's just stunning to me. When you, look yeah. at the, when you look at the studies that they're doing with the NFL, they had something like uh, the, the trial lawyer who's taking the NFL to court on brain injury. Um, they did a study of like 70, I think it was like 79 NFL players, and 74 of them exhibited clear signs of uh, trauma and early, consistent with early dementia and dying and, and drooling for the, for the rest of your short and painful existence. And, and we, 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 we not only strap kids up to do this, we encourage it and pay for it with our tax dollars. So mm. I had an, a, a, an appointment today with a neurosurgeon for my own sad tale. Oh, oh right. But um, I said, so since I've got you, am I crazy about this? He says, no, you're absolutely right. I think every neurosurgeon would agree with you. So I'm going to try to. What, what was that accent? Uh, he's that... Turkish. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was your stock neurosurgeon accent or something? <laughs> no. Although I was told by, uh, by another doctor, uh, oh, see if you can avoid going to a neurosurgeon. And, and I said, is that because, you know, they're a hammer and the world looks like a nail and they just want to do surgery? And he said, no, they're just all assholes. <laughs> well, I think all surgeons are assholes. They, they have to be a little. This to, guy's great, yeah. by the way. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to have found him. But, 
But yeah, so now I've, I've talked to a couple of people about this, and I'm, I'm going to try to figure out what is the path, because you just can't go in and say, ban football, you yeah. know, become yeah. the man who ruined football for everybody. Um, but I think that um, there is a lack of data, or at least um, aggregated data, that shows how damaging this really is. So I want to find what's the, what's the little hook you can hang, hang on football sweater so it will unravel. Yeah, uh, which is tracking this kind of stuff and doing and doing a study because eventually uh, I just I just think it's 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 crazy. What's well, really interesting the inconsistencies in how the United States um, legally and culturally deals with uh, age of consent issues. Like there's a case going on right now in Connecticut where uh, a young woman I think she's 16 has Hodgkin's lymphoma I think and she's refusing chemo. And her parents back her up, and the state has taken her into custody, put her in a hospital, strapped her to a bed, and, uh, you know, puts the chemo into her arm. There's a cop at the door because they say she's not old enough to make this decision. And yet, you're old enough to decide you want to play football and a significant risk of brain damage. You're old enough to drive a car. You're old enough, you know, under 18, people are being shipped off to foreign wars. Very interesting inconsistencies. 14-year-olds are being tried as adults and sentenced as adults. Well, what the hell's going on here? You know, either we know or we don't when a person becomes an adult. Well, uh, yes. And, you know, it, it, it's hard because as a parent, you know, I always say when my daughter starts dating at 30, I'm going to be very, very careful about who she goes out with. So, you know, obviously... Talk my, about shadowing. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so, you know, uh, when you become a parent, all of a sudden your belief in what is a what is an appropriate age of consent skyrockets. <laughs> skyrockets. But, yeah. but, but this is another thing. This is um, our failure as a society, and this, uh, this goes square into the political world and into the legal world and into everything that we do, our failure to integrate stuff we actually know mm -hmm. into the way we behave yeah. is pretty staggering. And yeah. so, for instance, um, what we know about the brain science of addiction renders, I don't know, 50 percent, 75 percent of the approaches to addressing addiction you know, absurd. I mean, there's there there's been a lot of there's been a, a, a lot of you know research lately that says no no this is a brain thing it's a brain chemistry thing and it works like this and if you do this it gets worse and if you don't remove that you know just shaking your finger and saying you're just being weak we know this has nothing to do with addiction. I mean, maybe some people can get better that way because of a coincidence. But the same thing, so the age of consent. I mean, we are learning uh, more and more about how brains develop and how brains work. And you would think that there'd be more to being able to, and, and you're never going to be able to fix it exactly, you know, at an exact moment in time, but your ability to get sort of in the neighborhood of when a developing brain is capable of synthesizing certain information or incorporating it or having the appropriate, you know, risk assessment is, is, is more yeah. sophisticated than this just having an opinion that 16 years old or 18 years old is, yeah. is, is the right moment. What puzzles me is that 
when we have a body of knowledge that could be applied to a political decision, a legislative decision, or a legal decision, can't we find some mechanism that gives you a high degree of confidence that the entire existing body of knowledge will be applied to whatever rule you're making or judgment you're making? And, and I don't think that happens. I, mean, I think we're going the opposite direction. I do, too. And, I do, and we talked a little bit about, before about fluoride. You know, this is not, this is not, um, um, this is not confined to, uh, trademark coming, the trailer park Taliban on the right who, you know, are religious fanatics and, you know, they think uh, being gay means you have devils in your head. And, uh, you know, we've got plenty of that uh, stuff on the other side, whether it's vaccines or fluoride or GMO or all, all the other, you know, stuff. But, but we just allow completely unsupported opinions um, to rule the day. Yeah. And I wish that the uh, I don't know if anyone has really sat down and said, how, how can we make a system of coming to these conclusions that really gives a higher degree of confidence that we are using good information? Well, I, don't we have a system that's being ignored? I mean, isn't that what scientific committees in Congress are supposed to be doing? You know, reports uh, being presented to Congress that are then ignored. Uh, the, the, you know, Congressional Budget Office that's now like changed the way they're going to make the economic predictions so that they can steal more money from the middle class. And, you know, I mean, it seems to me and this is something that that uh, we talked, I think we referred to a little, but we didn't really get into from my perspective, the United States went off the rails with the Reagan administration. That was, as far as I can tell, that's when, mm, how can I say, image became more important than substance. That's when Madison Avenue uh, and K Street uh, combined forces. And, well, long before that. Well, all right. Here's the thing. Reagan, Nixon, uh, Ford will skip because he was a historical accident. Um, you know, Kennedy, Johnson, Eisenhower, I go back in time, Truman to no, tell me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that they were in charge and then you get to Reagan. And my impression is that's an actor pretending to be president and the guys behind him are running the show. He doesn't even fucking know what's going on half the time. And then I look at George W. Bush and I see the same thing. I see figureheads that are put at, you know, Ronald McDonald, you know, is is running McDonald's as much as Ronald Reagan was running this country. Sure. But I mean, Warren G. Harding, um, you know, I, I mean, go back. I, I, I can't whip off the names of the Roman emperor, emperors who would have fit exactly that. Uh, yeah, you're you know, right. you're this right. is it's an old it's like thing. I said last time, there's nothing wrong with the world that getting rid of all the people wouldn't cure. Right. And these are all uh, artifacts of human nature and human behavior, how we aggregate uh, according to interests, how the accumulation of resources becomes a self-fulfilling you know, profit or cycle, uh, it, it, you know, the, what's the opposite of a virtuous cycle? You know, I mean yeah. that. And, and pernicious. I think, a, per, a pernicious cycle. And I think we're and, and I think it ebbs and flows. I think we're in a period right now where you have this pernicious cycle of 
um, corporate money and corporate influence, being able to set up puppet, you know, uh, front people, some of whom are in Congress, some of them who, some of whom run think tanks, um, and and I think we're in in one of those cycles. And then every so often it becomes so ridiculous that they start chopping people's heads off, and it is remarkable that it hasn't yeah. happened sooner here. Well, I, but- I, I, am, I agree. I. I don't see how this gets better w- until it gets to the point where the ruling class is literally scared to death. Yeah. Because that's when you get the New Deal, right? Right. That, that's, that, that's the puzzle. Although the New Deal, I mean, you know, everyone thought it was communist. It saved capitalism. Well, that's what I mean. Because, yeah. you know, they, they the, have to be afraid they're going to lose it all in order to give something. But usually you don't get the New Deal. You get the reign of terror. Well, they had it, right? The Red Scare. I mean, they were... No, no, no. The the people actually rise up and start cutting the heads off all the... Oh, oh, I see what you mean. I mean, I have a good friend who's now an elected official, so I won't give his name, but he once... We were once in a meeting uh, talking about uh, um, a bunch of uh, sort of anti-tax, anti-government ballot measures, which were facing Oregon. And it was... Uh, an unusual coalition of labor and the business community both agreeing this is bad and that there was, you know, how do you, how do you address sort of the problems of funding, uh, funding education and uh, social services in the face of these things? And my friend um, said, mildly joking, well, I think there's a clear pan- plan. We kill the rich and steal their stuff. <laughs> and, and the business side of the table had this like, <gasps> You know, it took them a moment to think that this is a joke. But at a certain yeah. point, when you have this ridiculous disparity uh, yeah. between the rich and the poor, which is, I mean, beggars the imagination right now, you have to figure at some point people are going to say, um, fuck you. I'm going to kill you now. Nice I, use, I of, the, nice use of the word beggars, by the way. Yes, that's very, very well done. Um, Yeah. You know, Montaigne, the French uh, Mm -hmm. essayist, um, I guess he was writing in the 1500s, I think. Uh, A couple of um, some Brazilian Indians were brought back to Europe and uh, they were introduced to the you can put that on there if you want. Um, They were introduced to the um, the king and the queen. And, you know, they sort of paraded around. They were chiefs of some tribe in in Brazil and um, Montaigne met them. And um, he asked them, what's, what's most in- interesting or surprising to you about European civilization, you know? And what they said is, we don't understand how it's possible that some men are living in the street with nothing and others are living in castles. Why don't the people in the street burn down their castles? <laughs> like, they just could not get it, you know? Uh, and you're right. It beggars belief. Religion. Yeah, well, propaganda. Call it religion, call it noblesse oblige, call it capitalism. Well, noblesse oblige is that which they, you know, the crumbs they sprinkle to hopefully avoid the great unpleasantness of right. killing the rich and, and taking their stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, I've always, and, you know, on the list of things that I say and get me in trouble, uh, I mean, I think one of the uh, points of religion, especially, uh, you know, the church in, in medieval times, was to provide a celestial justification for the feudal system and the promise of something beyond so you wouldn't kill the rich and steal their stuff. Right. I mean, that was the utility of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
pure and simple. You I mean, I think there are other reasons for religion as well, yeah. uh, all of which are centered on the need for us to be able to have a narrative that makes us feel more important, or at least makes sense of a universe that does not give a rat's ass about our little pimple on the ass of, of the celestial, you know, construct. Yeah. You ever heard George Carlin's thing on religion? The oh. greatest scam ever? Yeah. So, yeah. I, mean, you know. I, couldn't, I couldn't recite it, but, yeah. you know, certainly in line with my thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're selling something that you never have to deliver because it'll be delivered after they're dead. Absolutely. I mean, it's what a, a great <laughs> It's like, look at the guy, a guy who figured that out. You know, he must have figured that out. And, they went, and, then, and then everyone in the room went, whoa. That's a good idea. That's awesome. That's a better business plan than Ted. <laughs> yeah, I just I did a TED Radio Hour yesterday, so I've been talking about TED a lot recently. Their business plan's pretty amazing. Free content is what they sell, you know. Well, and you know, this was Google too. Yeah, you know, and and it sort of bent my mind because I'm an aging white guy. You know, new concepts don't come easy to me. But the <laughs> idea that there are people who have built empires. Some would argue the empires that will determine the future of our economy and the way we interact, essentially by thinking up something really cool and giving it away for free. Right. Well, and you get your your users to create the content they're paying for, yeah. you know, Facebook, whatever. It's all the same. It's like it's just connecting stuff that's already there. But anyway, back to politics, though. Oh, yeah, uh, politics. That's why. The, the dirty, the dirty uh, world of politics. You ever meet Lee Atwater or Karl Rove, two people who both deserve a shot to the head? Uh, no, I have not met them. Oh. You know, it's interesting. Lee Atwater repented. Yeah, on his deathbed. On I his know. Deathbed I was going to ask coming, you about that. Up yeah. to his deathbed. And he's sort of, I mean, is he a pioneer of this, like, I mean, I know, you know, we could go back to the Romans and dirty politics has always existed, but isn't he some sort of a pol- uh, pioneer in, in the real dirty media machination stuff? I don't think there's anything he's done that Machiavelli didn't write about. Yeah, that's that true. Uh, that um, what's his name? Um, oh, the the Roman senator um, Cicero. Cicero didn't complain about. Mm. Um, as a matter of fact, someone was saying that there was a. I don't know if it was Cicero wrote it or somebody who were, no it was somebody who worked for Cicero. Essentially, his political consultant describing the political plan and the campaign. And it was nearly indistinguishable from stuff that was done now. <laughs> this is, this is, you know, technology changes. It improves yeah. the ability for us to project things to individuals is, is racing forward. And we actually do a lot of digital work that, you know, if, if people knew how we could target them and what we knew about them, they'd really, really be upset. Mm. But it's all at the service of, Basic human nature, yeah. stuff that may or may not be hardwired in it, but there's very little new under the sun. There is nothing that Lee Atwater d- thought of doing that hasn't been done for hundreds of years in this country and thousands of years across every organized society. If you go back to um, uh, campaign materials against Thomas Jefferson, 
I mean, you couldn't imagine that shit happening right now. It's like, whoa, excuse me. Yeah. You know? But they weren't mentioning the, the, the black kids, were they? You, hell yes. Were they? Absolutely. The slave stuff was, yes. was out there? Sally, whatever uh, it was? Sally Jenkins, Sally, uh, Jenkins yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Oh, oh, shit, yes. I thought that was like... Whoremaster, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> you know, I mean, absolutely. What's the... Uh, Hey Ma, where's Pa? Gone to the White House. Ha ha ha. Oh really? <laughs> that was a slogan. Um, I, don't, I don't think it was. I don't want to get uh, ancestors into trouble. I don't know if it was Grover Cleveland yeah. or or it was William Taft, but it, it was a president of that era had and was rumored to have an illegitimate child, and so that was a slogan. Hmm. That was a slogan. So. You know, I, and, and we started touching on this at the end of, um, uh, of our first session. It's just really easy and maybe satisfying at some deep level to imagine that the world is going to hell and everything's a downward spiral and it's just getting worse and worse and then we're all going to grind to a halt. Um, but it's, I, I just don't think it... it it's like that. I, I think that there's ebbs and flows and there's cycles of shittiness. And, We're talking about politics stuff, now? Or politics, or life, society, uh, you yeah. name it. Uh-huh. I, am a, um, I am a gray person. I am not a black or a white person. There is nothing about human, uh, you know, the human condition can at the same time make you despair and, and make your heart sink depending on the day and the person or mm. even the circumstance in the same person. Yeah. Um, and, and I just think, you know, I was asked by somebody who was a, a babysitter of ours and sort of a young, impressionable, you know, early 20s and, you know, looked me up on the interwebs and figured out what I did and thought it was interesting mm. and wanted to know if uh, essentially... Uh, if 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 the revolution is coming, she was hoping it was. You know, she was somebody who was young and idealistic and thought that the world was just a cesspool, and uh, and and surely it can't go on like that. And the people will rise up and and um, you know there'll be. She had some new age woo woo. You know, there are these indigo children who are <laughs> are destined. She thought my daughter, my youngest daughter, was clearly an indigo child and was destined to lead the world and into a better place. And you know, I. I I tried to be gentle, uh, but I said, I, you know, it is hard to look back on history, and I don't count myself as a historian, so I'm sure there are exceptions to this, or I may be wrong, but it is hard to look back on history and see a revolution, like a real revolution, that's turned out really well. Mm. It, it, you know, the, the, the genesis of them are interesting, like the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution or, or any time that people rise up from oppression and, and, and overthrow the system, blah, 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 usually ends in tears. So, well, that's interesting. And, the French Revolution gave rise to modern democracy, which led to the American Revolution. Well, um, Yes, although it wasn't it the American Revolution that gave rise to the French Revolution. I think the uh, American was first. Was it? Yeah. And then the French Revolution. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So yeah. people like, um, you know, John Locke and uh, Montesquieu and, and, and other philosophers yeah. were used to sort of create the Declaration of Independence and the idea that, that there are certain inalienable rights. Right. We had... 
the revolution here, which many people think was a great move forward for humankind, other people think is a bunch of rich white men who didn't want to pay their taxes and figured out a way to <laughs> kick the tax man out. Uh -huh. See, two sides to everything. Oh, yeah. And that in return, I think the French looked at that and said, uh, and, and I could be getting it wrong, but the, the French Revolution was like 1780s or something, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe so. you're right. But it was all, yeah, it was all yeah. part of a ferment of, of, of the same time. So, but the point I was trying to make is you have these... Yeah, 1789. Big, right, yeah, these big yeah. convulsive movements, and then they turn into... So it's the French Revolution, I don't know, did it turn into democracy or did it turn into Napoleon? Uh, I think it was Napoleon. Mm. Um, and... And, and it ends in tears. But every day, small moves. I'm a small moves guy. Small moves in gray. Small moves in <laughs> 50 gray. Fifty shades of small. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've had that said about me, sadly. I, I hope, that, uh, I hope it didn't mean said. what I thought it meant. <laughs> uh, but, but when you come to the, the actual improvement of people's lives, is there a little more equity? Are people a little healthier? Is there a little more justice? Yeah. Do people have a little more opportunity? I think these things come from not huge, convulsive, paradigm-shifting moments, but the day-to-day -day application of a, of, of, of a, of, to me, you know, my, one of my big um, rulers, one of my big, you know, yardsticks, mm -hmm. is what I'm doing now going to make things better or worse? I think real progress is an accumulation of people doing things that make things a little better right. and not a little worse. And that I do think that while there are big swings and shifts in economic policy and in inequality and injustice, et cetera, et cetera, when you look over the entire course of history and you ask what's the cumulative difference of all the little things that happen, whether it's technology or politics or this or that, I find it a little hard to argue that the cumulative result of this is worse. We live longer. We are healthier. We have living standards that uh, have no comparison to the past. We have less violence, less war. We hear about it more because of technology, Horrors are brought to our doorstep in a way that is, you know, more pungent. I mean, if anyone thinks for a moment that World War II was nowhere near as bad as Vietnam, they're smoking crack. Same thing as World War I to World War II. But our ability to have that stuff sh pushed in our face, that's much greater. So our perception may be different. But if you take a big step backwards and you look at what is the course of human history, which way, as Martin Luther King would say, does the arc bend towards? Mm -hmm. He, I think he was right. The arc bends towards justice, and it, and, it, and it bends towards progress. And it's an incredibly messy, frustrating, inconsistent process within which, you know, if you pick any point on the timeline of history, you can find unimaginable horrors. But when you tote it all up, we're getting... Things get better. They don't get worse. And my personal view is that happens largely due to the accumulation of small things that pile up to a new reality. And there is nothing 
satisfying about that. There is nothing sexy about it. There is nothing attractive about it. There is nothing there that makes you want to grab the standard and charge up the hill. But I believe that's the reality. Mm-hmm. And, and I, um, you know, I, for better or worse, that's sort of where I've landed. And so I, I try to busy myself in, in addition to making a living, but I try to busy myself that, with things that make things a little better in an area or for some people. And you hope at the end of a lifetime you're, you're right on the balance sheet. When you, when you look back at your career uh, thus far, is there any particular candidate or cause that you've worked with that you're particularly proud of? Yes. Uh, I have done, over the years, a lot of work on uh, um, LGBT issues, or now it's LGDB, LGBTQQI. Oh, there are two Qs? There are two Qs. There's queer and queer questioning. And oh. I is intersex. Oh, oh, and I drink your tears oppressor. Yeah, <laughs> the social cut kittens calendar. Um, but um, I um, part of it comes from probably being a Jew, and having grown up at a time uh, when the Holocaust was still palpable. Mm. You know, I knew people who were in the camps or whose families were extinguished in the camps. Um, and so I, I tend to generalize that experience. And when I see people being carved out as the other, that really bothers me. And, mm. and so that's something that will get me, you know, excited. And I do think that um, gay uh, rights or LGBT rights or whatever you're supposed to call it right now is, um, in addition to race, obviously, uh, the cause of our time in this and a number of other countries. So uh, I'm, um, and you know, we came here in Oregon to the end of a very, very long road uh, where we now have same-sex marriage rights, freedom to marry, which is not the only issue, but was certainly a symbolic one. And uh, I've spent a lot of time on that, and I'm very proud of that. And, and that's one where, you know, it, that's progress. If you look back even 20 years ago, you wouldn't be able to imagine uh, us being where we are today. And, you know, there's a guy named Evan Wolfson who runs a, this uh, organization called Freedom to Marry, and he was one of the big national thinkers on uh, same-sex marriage or marriage, freedom to marry, that's what we, we call it now. And he had the great theory of, you know, how social change happens, and, you know, I'm going to screw up his metaphor, but it's like putting together a quilt. You have these little patches of... Um, little patches of fabric, and you try to sew them together. And at some point, it's a blanket. And it is the thing. And all of a sudden, that happens all of a sudden. Even if all if the work to do it went on forever, mm. there's this tipping point where all of a sudden it is now assumed that, that gay people should have the kind of rights that other people do when it had been assumed that they should be burned at the stake. Mm. Where's that moment? You don't know. But it feels like we're now past it. Mm-hmm. And that's that. That's been pretty satisfying to me. Yeah, I'll bet. And you're right. That's uh, that was unimaginable ten years ago. Yeah. And and the marijuana rights thing as well. Yeah. Well, that, I was Measure Ninety One. That's another one of my projects. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I helped uh, run the um, 
I, I did consulting in, in some of the paid voter contact on Measure 91, which um, legalized, regulated, and taxed marijuana in, in Oregon, which we're now, I've, I've just been having meetings over the last week of, um, okay, we passed the measure, now how do you prevent it from being hijacked or screwed up in the implementation? So that that's another one where, you know, watching the details really matters. Are you guys working with Mark Kleiman on that? Do you know him? No. You know who he is? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. He, I, got, I know he was involved in the Washington implementation. He was. Thing. He was. You know, the, the, the marijuana world um, is, is um, once again, I say this is, as a Jew, it's, it, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, you know, are you conservative or you're orthodox? You know, there's a very, this is actually a true story. It is very instructive. There were apparently two Jews left in Baghdad. Um, really, I mean, pretty much everyone had been uh, run out. And I'm sure there are more than two Jews, but there were two. And there were two temples, two shuls. We Jews call them shuls. And um, they, they didn't have a congregation. And they didn't have a minion. So a minion is you need 10 adult male Jews to say a whole set of prayers to have mm-hmm. it really be a, a service. And, but they were living in their separate shuls. And they asked both of them, well, why, I mean, why don't you join forces? And they both said, and this is the Lower East Side accent, I don't know what it sounds like in Baghdad is, is him, I wouldn't be caught dead in his shul. <laughs> So the, the marijuana world is kind of like, like that. that. Pretty fresh. Yeah, they're, uh, they, they have a bunch of people who won't talk to each other uh, because of yeah. something that happened 15 years ago that no one remembers. But Yeah, I met Mark Kleiman at, a, at an ecstasy conference at the Dead Sea in Israel. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah, yeah, imagine that. It was uh, it's one of my more interesting summer vacations ever. I was invited to this, uh, this ecstasy conference at the Dead Sea Hyatt. My one and only trip to Israel, and uh, it was um, sponsored by the Israeli military. So it was very interesting to be there with all these scientists from all over the world who were researching ecstasy, um, and uh, you know a few hippies and a few generals in the Israeli military. It was uh, very interesting. the The reason that they were Sponsoring it was that the Israeli military was ostensibly interested in using MDMA for um, psychotherapy to treat PTSD in soldiers because it's extremely efficient and uh, I guess efficacious is the word. As so, a reedy, I can testify to that. Okay, good. Your PTSD is taken care of. No, it? the MDMA though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a very interesting substance. I I know the guy who invented it or reinvented it, Sasha Shulgin. But anyway, Mark Kleiman was there at the conference. I met him there, um, and I've sort of loosely been in touch with him over the years. He's at UCLA, I think, still, and and then watching him become the go-to consultant on uh, marijuana reform was sort of interesting. But anyway, enough about. Enough about that. Um, but that's a, it's a good political point. Is, you know, if you want to get something done, put it in the military budget. <laughs> Do you know why we have an interstate highway system? Yeah, to Eisenhower. land those airplanes, yeah. No. Well, that's why there's a straight section there in is, everyone. Yeah, but, the, but Eisenhower yeah. really wanted to build an interstate freeway system. Yeah. Not for military reasons, but because it was a good thing to do. But he knew if he put it in the military budget and called it national security— all the money in the world would get showered. Yeah. Have you read his uh, military-industrial complex speech recently? Absolutely. 
It's chilling. It is, and it's prescient. Yeah. And, um, you know, the the military-industrial complex was very smart. One of the reasons it is so difficult to um, cut the military budget is they quite purposefully located uh, subcontractors according to congressional districts so that any major, not any, I'm overstating it, but many major weapon systems were impossible to cut even when the pentagon said i don't we don't want this yep. because there was a majority of congress people saying oh no you're not taking that away from my district even bernie sanders mm-hmm. is voting you know votes for this this jet that nobody wants the, the yep. F, whatever it is yeah you know that's so depressing well listen um i've taken up a lot of your time and i have to pack for my trip to spain in the morning oh. And uh, is there, I mean, I, I wanted to stop it there where you were talking about the improvement being the accumulation of small I things. I think that was such you a should great edit statement. this at least to end <laughs> on a hopeful note, uh, because yeah. I do and believe I, that to be true. And my listeners know that I don't necessarily agree with that view, but I, I can't bring myself to argue against it anymore. <laughs> it's too, I, if, 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 a, if a guy who is the number one result on the internet for the term total ass fucker, <laughs> which I am. Well, how did that happen? say something like that. There has to be some hope for the world. So that's true. I, I didn't look that up, but you mentioned that last time. You're the number one Google result for total ass fucker? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you know what's, I mean, first of all, it's amazing to be the number one result in the entire internet for anything. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, but what oh, I great. beat is just jaw dropping. It's like, wow, not, oh, I beat that? You're not even gay. No. So, how do you get to be total ass fucker? So uh, the, uh, a, a profile was once done of, of me. And not that only gay people are ass fuckers. Yeah, yes, so not that there's yeah. anything wrong with that. Or anything it, wrong with yeah. it. Um, isn't, this the way, isn't that the way that conservative Christian women preserve their virginity? And Muslim women. And Muslim women, oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, don't look down your nose at Probably it. Probably Jewish M- women, Mr. too. Sex- <laughs> <laughs> How, how do they preserve it? I'm not making that show. <laughs> too easy, too easy, too easy. But at any rate, there was an interview about me, um, and, and it led off. It was a profile of me, and it led off with a quote, Mark Wiener is a total ass fucker, said someone, I'm paraphrasing now, said someone who refused to be identified because, quote, I need to work in this town, unquote. And for some reason, there's some magic about the phrase total ass fucker that, uh, that has reserved this to me. Wow. I am number one, the man fantastic. in the shadows. That's I, the title. I'll of bet the, you could sell that. You know, there are people who probably would love to have that title. You would think. Yeah. But, you know, there's so, there are so few opportunities in life to be number one at anything. <laughs> Even if it's that, you, you just can't throw it away. Yeah. Your, your family must be very proud. I know. They're so Oh, my sons were delighted <laughs> when they found that out. Well, you know about Dan Savage's thing, what he did. Santorum. Yes, Santorum. that's what I said. Yeah. I've got my own Santorum problem. Yeah, that's wonderful. And they, now he's doing it to Huckabee, too. Have you heard yeah, about that uh, Yeah, I can't remember what the definition is. or it's, I think he's soliciting for definition. Well, I think the front runner at this point is to Huckabee, it has to be a verb, uh, is to inadvertently vomit when you're giving a blowjob. 
It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's, it's onomatopoetic. Yeah, it's okay. exactly. I mean, it's not as good as that that the frothy mix of lube yes, and fecal matter. Yes, frothy. <laughs> That's the thing. You know, you got to hang a word. You got to hang yeah. on a word, and frothy. Is, oh, it's uh, a good one. It's like the best. It's the worst latte you've ever had. <laughs> Exactly. A quad centaurum latte, please. Yeah. I just threw up in my mouth. All right, guys. Look them up on Google. Uh, just, just Google total ass fucker and you'll find Mark Wiener in there eventually. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, man. I, uh, I really this is great it. fun. Invite me back if you ever. Uh, it's think an of open invitation. But uh, this is, you know, it's so rare you get the. The, the in 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 Jewish comedy, it's called spritzing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just spritzing, you're, I thought spritzing was to take a shower. I'm going to take a spritz. No, no, well, you could take a spritz after you have a schwitz. Uh-huh. But within a uh, schwitz is sweating, right? Uh-huh. But in in the comedic world, uh, if you're spritzing, you're just sort of riffing. You're just sort of randomly oh, right. uh, talking about stuff. So this, I would put this in the category of spritzing. And, and the opportunity to sit and spritz for like an hour, it's really non-existent in one's day-to-day life, especially really? if you have children. Oh, yeah, you know, the yeah. day ends before you have a chance. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great fun because, as you can tell, I'm, I'm somebody who's you're got no, no dearth of opinions. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're, you know, when your your buddy Steve recommended, I said, "Oh, you got to talk to my friend Mark." And oh, by the way, Steve uh, Herman, right? Yes. Yeah, he's he's also going to be. I don't know if his will come out before or after this episode, but um, for people listening to the podcast, he's the guy who's the expert on um, child sex abuse cases, and he's the court consultant and all that sort of stuff. Well, and he's a very specific expert on it, which is very interesting. I don't yeah. know what he went into, but... Uh, yeah, he went into sort of, you know, he was debunking a lot of the hysteria around these cases. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very uh, It's very, very interesting. Important and, it's, it's incredibly important. It's very contrarian. Yeah. It's uh, something where you've got to tread lightly because you don't want to invalidate the horrific experiences of people who are genu- right. genuinely abused right. but there's there's there are cases of false accusation that a lot of them ruins a lot of lives and yeah. that's i think it's important work he does and brave very very brave. anyway he mentioned like oh you got to talk to my buddy mark he's a political consultant and my first thought was that would be great but he's not going to say anything because <laughs> those guys are careful you know they're political consultants but you're you're pretty uh, relaxed yeah we're going to run for office and so i can say all sorts of shit see i i was thinking why don't people do that why don't people i mean not that i would ever run for office but if i if i ever did the first thing I would say is, you know, here are the drugs I've taken. Here are the the married women I've had sex with. Like, get it all out on the table, right? I mean, I'm not, that way you know I'm not lying to you. Like, when you go to a, a salesman and the salesman says, you know what, I don't really think this is the best car for you. That's the guy I'm going to, I'm going to buy something from that guy. Because yep. I trust him, you know? It, I there's a there's a thing in advertising where I think there's um, sort of a, a rebound effect that people are so, and I think this is why podcasts are, are getting more and more popular. People are so tired of the ultra-produced, filtered, focus group bullshit that they're getting that there's something really refreshing about unedited, raw interaction, right? Is that ever going to happen in politics? Oh, um, yes. And um, 
it uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to look up a quote if I could have it. Uh, I can pause this. Uh, no, no. Uh, oh, it is here. Um, it's the greatest quote that I have ever offered. In a, a, uh, Are you quoting yourself? I will be quoting myself. Oh, okay. Just because well it's, done. It's, 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 it's pertinent to what you've, what you've just said about right. you know, giving, giving people all the information about yourself. But I think that's true. You know, for a while, the great uh, word in politics was... Um, authenticity, right? That voters are 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 starved for authenticity. And by the way, I think that's absolutely right. And I always see my job in working with a candidate. You know, some candidates come and say, you know, I say, why do you want to run for office? What is it about you that that um, you know qualifies you or, or gives you the passion to do it? And they say, well, I'm coming to you for that for help with that. And then I say, thank you, you're not qualified. Yeah. Um, my job, I always see my job is to find that thing within people that is interesting. And that is authentic. And that would make somebody hearing that story go, I understand why they're doing this. And I might not even, might not even agree with everything, um, everything they're saying, but I understand this person and their motivations, and I have a sense of view into their values, and I want that. I think people look for that. I had told the story, I think, in our first uh, in our first. Um, uh, go round here about my decision to go into campaigns as opposed to public policy because of the Ronald Reagan debate, right? No, they, I don't think you told that story. That that Walter Mondale, yes, oh I did. yeah, you did. That yeah, Walter yeah. Mondale sounded perfectly reasonable. Right. Uh, Ronald Reagan started drooling Had on his, his shoes, moment, yeah. and everyone said, "Reagan, I want him." Yeah. Or George W. Bush, the old. Uh, that's a guy I'd like to have a beer with. That's how people make their decisions. Yeah. And if you can find that nugget in somebody. And deliver it honestly, that that's really important. And very few people do it. Very few people go through the trouble of doing it. And uh, if uh, and if they uh, if they do and they do that work, they're going to deliver something uh, of value in terms of the practice of politics. And, but it's also hard, isn't it? Because the system's set up against it, right? The yes. system's set up to screw you over for your your flaws and your foibles and, and the mistakes you've made and. Well, that that's true, um, but you have an obligation to do the work and to resist that. Do you? I mean, everything, everything to, you know, entropy sort of pushes you through, you know, you know, the loss of momentum or, you know, lowest common denominator, whatever it is. I think that's just natural. Everyone wants to press the easy button. And if you're a craftsman or you're serious about what you do, you understand that's a danger for you that you'll become stale, that you'll become just rote. And uh, people do that all the time, and that's when you should put yourself out to pasture. And I work right. really hard not to fall uh, victim to that. And I think finding, you know, doing the extra work with somebody who's running for office and find why they're interesting, why they're worthwhile, or, or the way I, I, I say it, why they're worth the powder it would take to blow them to hell. But I do. I will share at the risk of hubris, because uh, yeah, you asked you asked the question about uh -huh. you know are you better off just laying out your uh, all, all your your you know bad history. Generally, that's true. But there was a candidate uh, not too long ago, a few years, maybe ten years ago, actually. Time flies. Yeah. <laughs> um, who sent a letter out to uh, his potential constituency? 
detailing a long list of, uh, you know, I was arrested for this and I went bankrupt and I had a Dewey and I might have smacked my wife. But, I, you know, I forget what the actual list of, but it was enough so that, you know, it was noticed in the press. And I was I was asked for a comment about that. And um, it, it said uh, that I agreed that it can be prudent for a candidate to air his or her laundry before an opponent has a chance to do it for them. It's true. But then what I said is, having said that, though, there comes a point where the accumulation of different problems and errors in judgment over the course of a lifetime moves from the category of explanation to a narrative of spectacular serial boneheadedness that might tend to disqualify one from serious con consideration as a public official. And my sense is that Mr. Marino has strayed into this territory. <laughs> and and, and yeah. the only reason, and I had forgotten I said it, because as you can tell, I say a lot of shit and forget it immediately. But the reporter, two months later, called me and said, I just wanted to let you know that my mother is a reporter for the Southampton Spotlight or whatever mm -hmm. the, the paper is out there in the Hamptons. And she wrote to me and said that was the best quote <laughs> she had ever read in a story of any kind over her life as a journalist. Wow. So All I, right. I'm proud of that. Yeah, yeah. Well done. I, I uh, when our book came out, I got a lot of interest from TV producers who thought, you know, hmm, bestseller, we could do a TV show around this. And uh, one of them I met with, uh, we ended up actually working together for a while. Um, interesting guy. But I remember the first meeting, and you reminded me of it. You're talking about your meeting, someone comes in, and your first question is why, right? Why are we going to do this? And that was his first question to me. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't really care about being famous. It's not about that. It's not about money. It's, uh, you know, if we're going to do this, um, I would say the, the main value is for people to see someone on television who's got some scientific credibility talking about sexual habits that they might consider to be strange and perverted and weird and whatever. And, but I'm doing it in a non-judgmental way that brings comfort to people who are not normal and very few people are normal. Right. So anyway, he said, yeah, okay, I can see that. That's a good motivation. He said, so what's, what's your on air personality going to be? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, what are you going to be? Who are you going to be on, on air? And I said, well, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be authentic. And he said, oh, oh, okay. You're going to be authentic with air quotes. <laughs> I think I've told that story before on the podcast. But, That's great. you know, the, the point was, and at the time I thought, well, this guy's kind of an ass. But then I realized, no, he's right. Because when you become a public figure, a brand, as they say in L.A., there's a certain amount of consistency that's expected from you. So if you're funny in the pilot, you better be funny in episode one, two, three. Yeah, you got to stay. You, if you're that guy, if you're amusing, if you've got a quirky take on things, then you're the quirky guy. And if you stop being quirky and start getting too thoughtful, then people get confused. Yeah. Right. You know, Louis C.K., who I think is one of the oh, smartest brilliant. people and funniest people around. Yeah. Plays with that. Yeah. He plays with that because his his stand up. Actually, the New York Times did a really uh, interesting review of his latest uh, stand up show. I saw that. It, it wasn't is, entirely positive. It, 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 well, I mean, it was admiring. It was admiring. Yeah. I think it was fair warning to you all. Right. That what he was, he is he is 
he is, uh, you know, I don't think transforming, but he's moving in a direction. He's going along a continuum. And I think he probably does that with great uh, consideration. And I admire that. I admire the shit out of that. If you can take a form and make it elastic enough so that it progresses and yet you don't leave behind the people who liked you to begin with, mm. wow, is that a high wire act. And, you know, yeah. before, I don't know if we mentioned this, before I was in politics, I was in theater. I was an actor. Yeah, yeah, you studied theater. And, yeah. and, and you know, the struggle there is you have to say the same thing night yeah. after night. Yeah. That people have been saying, in some case, for hundreds of years, and yet it has to be authentic and it has to be true, and people in the audience have to believe that you believe this. Yeah. That's technique. Yeah. I mean, it has to be real, but if you have to replicate that over and over again, uh, that's why I always say it's, 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 it's not um, – my, my background in theater is, is not uh, unrelated to the way I approach politics. And and how why I believe I can do politics well and consistently because I understand that while you're doing the same thing and it's the same practice, if if it's not real, if it's not rooted in something real and authentic and genuine, people smell out a phony. Yeah. You ever heard of Brad Blanton? No. He ran against Eric Cantor. In uh, Virginia. Oh yeah, yes, yes, yes. The the radical honesty. Yes, no, no. Now I know who he is. He's the professor that uh, he's knocked psychologist. Him off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, no, not the guy who knocked him off. He he lost to Eric Cantor. Oh. Um, but he's a very interesting case, and, and I, I would very much encourage anyone listening to this to Google uh, Brad Blanton, This American Life. There's a ten minute uh, video that This American Life did of him. Uh, that's just wonderful. It's it's the candidate who doesn't lie. He, he wrote a book called Radical Honesty. He's a psychologist who does workshops. Uh, and his belief is that virtually all our problems come from the fact that we lie to other people and to ourselves. And so he practices radical honesty. He will not lie about anything to anyone. And he ran for Congress in Virginia. And he got 25% of the vote as an independent. Right. Oh. So then the and but Cantor won. Right. So then uh, the next uh, election, he was running again and people just loved him because he just wouldn't lie. Right. And so uh, the Democrats were going to back him because he's already got name recognition. And, you know, obviously he charms people. He's a good speaker, whatever. Um, and the one the thing that stopped them was that in these uh, workshops that he runs with people, it's like a three-day workshop, and one morning session, everybody gets naked, and they talk about body shame and things about their body that they've always been uncomfortable with, and they have this cathartic experience with other people, and you know, other people have the same experiences, and everybody feels great afterwards. And, but that's the thing the Democrats couldn't handle. He has nudity in his workshops. Yeah. Okay, but it's amazing, and this the the the, the video is fantastic. He's sitting there, and the the journalist says to him, "So I can ask you anything?" And he says, "Yeah, shoot." And she says, um, "Have you ever had sex outside your marriage?" And he says, "Oh, 
Oh yeah, I, I I've had uh, herpes four times. I got gonorrhea the first time when I was twenty-two. I've been married three times. I've probably had sex literally with three or four hundred women. I've had homosexual experiences. <laughs> and just, and the reporter saying, "No, stop! No, really, please." Exactly. How do you get? Hilarious. You can't get herpes three or four times. You I get don't it know. Once. I don't know. Maybe I the gonorrhea. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. But he's just like he just dumps it out there, all with a smile. You know, he's a charming guy. Anyway, his daughter does the theme song for this for this podcast. <laughs> that <laughs> she's, is she's awesome. She's a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, I mean, Brad Blanton, he's great. Yes, radical honesty. It's... And you know, talking about hypocrisy and hiding things. You know, uh, the story about Jack Ryan, the guy who was running against Obama for uh, senator. Yeah. Do you know? Remember why his campaign imploded? imploded. Uh, he he got caught out with something that would have been so easy. S- sex. Yeah. He was married to a woman who I think was a newscaster in Chicago. She said, oh, we had threesomes. No, he kept trying to get her to go to swing swingers clubs right, with, right, her, right. with him. I know there's a threesome in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So he was trying to lure her into these swingers clubs and lying to her. About what they were. So he was like, oh, let's just go in here and have a drink. And they'd walk into some club and there are people fucking everywhere. And she's like, dude, what? what I told you I don't want to do this. Oh, you know, and he was pretending he didn't know and all. So they got divorced. Like, Does that ever work? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, really? I know. It's, well, it's like the old story about a guy, about a guy, you know, says, what's your technique for um, uh, picking up women? And so I walk into a bar, I go up to a woman I like and said, you want to fuck? Yeah. And he says, does that ever work? And she, he goes, well, you get your face slapped a lot. But every so often. Every so often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was in the divorce um, papers that were sealed. But I guess because he was running for office or something, some journalist got a freedom of information thing. And the, the wife, ex-wife, never said anything publicly. But it came out. And that's why his campaign, which was much better funded, you know, set up, imploded. Obama won the Senate seat, and then the rest is history. Oh, and we talked last time about, you know, the idea that Obama was, you know, existed in a shaft of light, and it was destiny, and he was the most brilliant campaigner ever. Lucky as a motherfucker. Luck's got got a lot to do with it, and there's nothing wrong with luck. No. What's the old saying? I'd rather be lucky than good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, what do you think? Last question. Last question. I know you got to go. You have to I I think half an hour. Don't blame this on me. (laughs) You got to go pack. I got to go pack. I'm going salsa dancing in two hours, and I got to pack before that. I hate salsa dancing. Well, you do, yeah, thank you. Because I was like, really? You're going salsa dancing? If it's not going to get you laid, I do not understand what the point of that is. Well, I'm going with my wife, so that, that's a moot, moot point, as they say. Oh, no. That could be the trick. <laughs> that's, look, look, every marriage has, you know, the bargain, right? You know, <laughs> you're not going to get this unless I'm going to get that. And uh, salsa dancing is going to get it, do, get it for you. Nah. You have given me the only justification I've ever heard for going salsa dancing. <laughs> All right. Well, well, this is uh, my question is related uh, to, to this in some sense. You remember when the Clintons went on 60 Minutes um, when he was running and the Jennifer Flowers thing was right, the big issue. Right. And, and he gave this, you know, they asked him about it and he gave this whole thing about I've done damage to my marriage. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. what do you think would have happened 
if he had said, you know, in light of all that we've seen since then, right? If the two of them had looked at the journalist, whoever it was, and said, it's none, none of, of your, your fucking exactly. business. Right. That's right. I think, I think American culture fine. was ready for that, as we saw in the public response to the Newt Gingrich-led hypocritical, you know, always who was... The, never the crime, always the cover-up. Right. If, uh, if you behave like you're hiding something, then, then it sets off a treasure hunt. And if you just flat out said, none of your business and nothing to do with running for president. There are people who will be turned off by it, but it's better than the, you know... You know, there, there's the old joke about the speech he should have given instead of, I did not have sex yeah. with that young woman. Um, you know, the, someone wrote a speech that started off, yeah, I banged her. I banged her like a cheap Chinese <laughs> gong. And if you could tell me what that's got to do with my being president, then you're going to be one smart fucker. <laughs> you do a good Clinton. That's good. I used, to, I used to do these things for a living. Thank you very much. Uh, you quoted yourself. I was just going to find uh, a quote from Sex at Dawn. What was the name? He was uh, a governor of Colorado, and then he was education secretary. Uh, Romer? Yeah, exactly. Roy Romer. Let's see. Roy Romer. Um, yeah, 1988, Roy Romer, then governor of Colorado, faced a feeding frenzy of questions about his long-running extramarital affair that had recently become publicly known. Romer did what few public figures have dared. He refused to accept the premise underlying the intrusive questions, that his extramarital relationship was a betrayal of his wife and family. Instead, he called an extraordinary press conference where he pointed out that his wife of 45 years had known about and accepted the relationship all along. Romer confronted the tittering reporters with, quote, life as it really happens. What is fidelity, he asked the suddenly silent gaggle of reporters. Quote, fidelity is what kind of openness you have, what kind of trust you have, what is based on truth and openness. And so in my own family, we've discussed that at some length, and we've tried to arrive at an understanding of what our feelings are, what our needs are, and work it out with that kind of fidelity. Unquote. That's... 1988. Amazing. And it's amazing you've never heard of that. Because, I mean, it's not amazing, but you've never heard of it because it was a non-issue, because it put out the fire. As you said, it's like that, that ends the, the, the ghost Yeah, what do you say of that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, what you, what you strive for is a non-sequitur, Yeah, right? You strive for saying something that, you know, what, what follow-up question, question can you offer that doesn't make you look like a complete and utter dipshit? Right. That's yeah. art. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully done. Anyway, listen, I would, I could talk to you for hours, but then uh, you'd have to go right. salsa dancing. Yes. <laughs> That's not happening. <laughs> right back at you. This is a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do it again in a couple months. Absolutely. Soon. All right. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.